Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. After a little bit of a break in this series, we are getting back to the Batman on Film miniseries we've been doing where we are reviewing every Batman movie. Uh, we went through five parts. We talked about 1966 Batman, 89 Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Mask of the Phantasm. We're having a great time. And then we hit Batman Forever, and we stopped having a great time, and it's been three months. <laughs> Man, has it really been that long? It's been since January. We were on a, 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 a real streak there, Sean, where the first five episodes, it was, it was, they were all done the same way. It was one episode for Batman, two non-Batman, then Batman, and it was all five were in that exact order, and now it's been three months. Yeah, that almost makes it sound like we originally planned it to be at that cadence, which we didn't. It was just like, no. this was entirely a, hey, when we have an open week, we'll try to do a Batman thing. Um, but, you know, I mean, now that you say it that way, it makes a lot of sense because it basically has been this entire, for like me, the entire school semester. I guess for you as well, right? As uh, yeah, uh, teachers yeah. aid and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, that entire school semester, I have not been in the mood to watch Batman Robin, especially after um, tasting the bitter taste of Batman Forever. Uh, and once that's in your mouth, you don't really want to go see the sequel. Yeah. Uh, Batman Forever, that podcast was February 8th. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it's been a while, Sean. But anyway, yeah. So, um, you know, we're going to talk about Batman and Robin. That'll be our main topic today. Do you want to give your brief, like, like were you surprised by how much you loved the movie, Sean? And this is just going to be a really, like, surprising podcast for the listeners. We were right to dread watching that movie. Like, that's what I'll say. Like, because the reason we put it off was just because, because it was, you know, a nice coinciding events of like, we were watching Double O Gundam, which is amazing for Weekly Suit Gundam. So it was like, well, do we really want to do Batman Robin or we could just fast track Gundam and do more Gundam and that kind of stuff. And we kind of like prioritized other stuff. But it was Batman Robin didn't make a very convincing argument, both from its reputation and my vague memory of the movie. Um, because I do have memories of watching this one, unlike Batman Forever, which is just a memory black hole because of the nature of how what that movie is. Uh, Batman, Batman Robin is a terrible film. People shouldn't watch it. Um, it has very little that is redeeming about it. It's got maybe slightly more that's redeeming about it than Batman Forever, but it also is somehow even more of a nothing movie in terms of its plot and character development. So it's just yeah. bad. It's just a bad I one. I'd agree with that. We'll talk about that later. That'll be our main topic today. We will also do a little bit of stuff. We'll do a little bit of news, including uh, remembering the great Shunsuke Kikuchi, composer for Dragon Ball, who passed away at the ripe old age of 89 this week, uh, which made me very sad. So you will hear us talk about that. But uh, first up, some housekeeping. I still want to encourage people to subscribe to the Weekly Stuff's new YouTube channel which is going strong. There are over 200 videos on the channel now. Uh, so I am making good progress in getting the entire backlog up there. Um, and now really I'm just filling in the holes because all the fun playlists that I've told you about are complete. And now I'm basically doing the like year playlists. So all of season one, 2012, is complete on there. 
All of season six, because I had videos for those, uh, is complete. All of the current year episodes, 2021, uh, are up there and, and will obviously continue to be. So uh, more will be coming up. It might still be sort of a subscription dump. Sadly, there's no way for me to stop that where on your main YouTube subscription page, if I put up 20 videos, they're all going to show up in a row. I wish I could tell it like not to do that, but there's no way to do that. So if you're subscribed now, I do apologize for that, but obviously that'll stop once everything's up. Um, and it'll just be a normal upload schedule. So, but that's the housekeeping. It's going well. Very nice. Yeah. How have you been, Sean? What have you been up to? I've been pretty good. Um, I feel like I haven't done a lot to talk about on the podcast. Like, I've put a lot more time into Yakuza 7. Um, so I'm now at, I'm like, I think at the end, basically, of Chapter 9. But I've done... I've done basically everything I can do at the point of the game other than advancing the story. So I've done all the minigame yeah. stuff. I've done every sub-story available to me, which is, I think, 36 or something out of the total 50. Um, so I've, like, done the optional Yokohama dungeon. I've leveled up most of my weapons. So, like, I've, I feel like I have finally hit the point in the game where the JRPG systems have developed enough that it kind of sucked me in. Because I think that's the thing that was keeping me... I mean, the main thing that was keeping me from, like, putting a huge amount of time in the game is just I've been busy um, with work. But the other thing is, like, the pace of the game is a lot different from a traditional Yakuza game because of the combat. The combat's just slower. It just takes you longer to get through normal fights when you're going around the city and stuff because it's turn-based. Um, and I think those early stretches of the game are good, but, like, it just takes you longer to hit the meat of the combat relative to the combat system than it does in a brawler yakuza game where once you're like five or six hours in you have most of the major moves you want in a yakuza game and then it's just like getting additional cool stuff on top of that but the full combat system feels like it's developed and it's really not i feel like until you get to this point of the game where you're like characters get to about level 23 to 25 ish and then your your jobs are leveled up enough that you have higher level skills and then like it incentivizes you enough to go try different jobs to get the class skills in different job levels and like you have enough resources especially if you do the um business mini game and have an ungodly amount of money and you can just get three million yen in about five minutes if you want to just by going back into it which is great um so you can just buy all the resources you want um and kind of game the whole crafting system and like once all of that opens up now i have found this past week i have put a lot more time to that game and had a very very good uh time with it yeah, that sounds about my thoughts on it, other than I don't have the comparison to the other Yakuza games, so I just, I was always on board with it. Um, yeah, there is definitely a point where you have so much you can do on kind of the grind of it that it's very fun to just get lost in that. I do think late in the game, the grind becomes like untenable, maybe, if you want to go like into endgame stuff. But through the main arc of the game, it's it's a lot of fun, and I enjoy leveling up weapons and doing all of that shit. Um, and if you're in Chapter 9, yeah, most side stuff is is free to you. There's a couple little things that you have to wait until Chapter 15 to clean up. Um, but, like, the racing minigame, you don't... If you're if you're wondering, Sean, like, why can't I do the rest of the racing minigame? Chapter 15 is when you can do the rest of the racing minigame. Yeah, 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 so. that, that's very similar to other Yoxy games. So, yeah, like, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of what is left of the game. Like, I think I'll probably get through the rest of the game relatively fast. Like, I expect I probably will have it done or mostly done by next week. Um, just because this is like the pace of Yakuza games. You hit that middle point where most of the game has now opened up, and then you just gorge yourself on like everything that is on offer, and then mainlining the story stuff past that point does not take as long as you would think. Um, so, 
yeah I'm, you've got I'm, a lot of good stuff to look forward to yeah so yeah the story has definitely like hit a really good pace in terms of the main story good like revelations around major characters um it kind of forces you to use um ellie as a your fourth party member uh or like if you have her unlocked at this point you kind of get a fourth party member slot opened up for story reasons and then she got put in there and now she's like one of my favorite characters because her main her like office clerk class or whatever that she has by default fucking rules um and she has this like thumbtack move she uses that is so far um the best area of effects spell i've found in the game outside of like the breakdancer class has some of that but she's just got this like fan of fucking thumbtack she throws at enemies that just like unless they are resistant to slash attacks it just chews them up and it feels great every time that one's great uh i made her a dealer in like Mm -hmm. a like a black like a poker dealer and that class is insane once you get it leveled up there's a move called darts airstrike that can just take out most teams in one hit she airy is a very overpowered um party member when you level her up in multiple classes she's awesome yeah, right now I've because I got her level up to whatever it is that I have all the class skills for the clerk uh, job unlocked. So now I have made her a night queen. I haven't played much with that, but I then put her. So that's the like dominatrix class, but I put her in the uh, Kaoru Sayama suit, which is a character from Yakuza Two. So she's wearing a business suit but walking around with a dominatrix whip, and that is way hotter to me than her in the dominatrix outfit. <laughs> like it's way better. I highly recommend if you're going to play the game, like do it that way because it is, it's it's so much funnier to me and it's it's like a way better the, look than the that, whole dominatrix get up. The outfits are spectacular. Uh, for instance, Nanba for me spent most of the game in the um, in the uh, what's the name of the guy with the eye patch? Um, uh, Majima. Majima, yeah, the Goro Majima outfit because that just it's like a rough tuck like suit and like the eye patch and ruffled hair and like do that with his normal like homeless um, class and it's just perfect. That looks that's what Nanba is supposed to look like. I think. No, I made him a break dancer and that made me okay. very happy because uh, <laughs> that is a very funny. I made him a break dancer and right now I have Adachi uh, is a musician and that makes me very happy as well. I like him yeah. running around. He has a flaming acoustic guitar that he beats the shit out of people. Um, and it's funny to me because it is, you know, it's basically a bard class where most of the class skills are more about, like, buffs and healing. Um, but because he is naturally more of a tankish damage dealer type character, it, like, enhances the that element of the character to where he, I just, like, mostly I just have him hit people in the face with the guitar and it does a shit ton of damage and it feels great. <laughs> That's great. I did use, I used uh, some of those classes for later party members you get, so... Because uh, you've still got a few more to get. It's very cool. Yeah, anyway. I think I know very well one of the characters is going to be a party member because it's a character that it feels like they bit themselves over backwards to find a way to bring him back from Yakuza 6, and it's fucking amazing. <laughs> they somehow it's found I know Han Jungi. Um, he's a character that if you play Yakuza 6, you'll be surprised to know that he's in Yakuza 7. Um, he's he's an amazing character, and he was my breakdancer. Um, and he looks good in a, in a breakdancer suit, so it was fun. Yeah, Mr. Anyway. Bushido himself. Yes, we'll, we'll talk about uh, all of that more in the weeks to come, I'm sure. Uh, Sean, I played Resident Evil 7. Very good. Which, which you played last week. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Fuck. That game is unreal. That game is unbelievably good. It is basically like Resident Evil 1 and 2 had a baby with PT and Saw. And just made this glorious, weird, fucked up, gnarly horror game that is also just like a perfect like exploration game. 
Uh, I adore every inch of it. It's one of my favorite Resident Evils. Um, it might be my... It, it's up there. It's like that four and two are my favorites. Um, and I love it to death. It's so good. I played the main campaign. I've also played one of the two big DLCs. I played Not a Hero, which is the one with Chris. Mm-hmm. Have you done any of the DLC yet, Sean? Yeah, I've like I got like halfway through the Chris one and then stopped. And then I got very sucked into Yoxa 7 and haven't finished it yet. Okay. But I was intrigued by, what they, by that because it is much more... It feels like they really like care to like change the feel of the game to make it that you're not playing random dude Ethan who wandered into yes. the situation. Instead, you are Chris Redfield, the special agent of stars slash now blue umbrella. Um, and I like really enjoyed that. It's great. It's a, it's about a two hour DLC. I played it in one sitting. Um, it's fantastic. Chris is, Chris is a great character and they really do alter the game for him. It also wraps up like one, if my, I had one complaint about Resident Evil 7, I thought it was a little short and had a couple loose ends and the Not A Hero DLC kind of fixes all of that for me. It's exactly what I wanted. It's great. Um, and I'm excited to play the other one, which is the end of Zoe. And then there's some other like small modes they added that I might check out. Um, as well as like the new game plus in that game is insane. I looked it up. It's like very different, mm-hmm. um, and, and changes a bunch of things up. So I might have to do that at some point as well. Um, but it's fantastic. I loved it. I played it all on my PC keyboard and mouse. Um, it ran at about like 160 FPS on my, uh, system. And just like, that was the perfect way for me to play it. Like, just there was something about like turning off the lights, sitting at my desk, looking at my computer. It's like a lot of the classic Resident Evil games. It has a very like '90s PC game esque feel to it. Of you're walking around, you're looking at stuff, you're reading notes, all of that kind of adventure game stuff. And it was just the perfect way for me to play that game. I, I loved it to death. It's so good. And now I am unreal excited for Resident Evil 8 um, Village, which is coming out very soon. And I am just, I'm not watching or digesting anything about that game. I just want to go in as fresh as possible. Like, I know there's a demo that everyone is excited about. I know there's a big lady that everyone wants to step on them. But I am good just uh, just keeping it, keeping myself unspoiled on it because it's so cool. Yeah, I have also, I have not gone out of my way to play the Resident Evil 8 demos either because it's like, well, the game's out in like a week. Uh, I might as well just wait and play the full full thing. Yeah, one thing I'll say about in terms of like playing the game on PC, I'm assuming that the PC version does not have HDR or your Uh, PC monitor doesn't. Well, yeah, I think it does have HDR, but my monitor doesn't have yeah. it. So yeah, so that's like one thing I would say is because um, probably the game is mostly better on PC with a higher frame rate, and although it runs at sixty on any console version, um, but uh, the HDR in the game looks unbelievably good, especially that first area. I would recommend because if, if you have the PlayStation, you have that game. Like it's been free in like five different ways. Yeah. Um, like just play the first two hours that opening section with Mia with HDR on at night because it is one of the best looking implementations of HDR I've seen and particularly in that area because the thing that HDR gets you or one of the things that HDR gets you is like really deep blacks um and so that section of the game where it is so dark um it it is like one of the best looking games I've seen mostly on the back of like art direction because the like use of shadows and lighting in there is so controlled that it makes things look like unbelievably realistic in some of those sequences, particularly with the coloring that HDR gives it. Um, it is, it is, I, it, it has been a while since I played a game in HDR where the HDR usage made like kind of made me sit up and take notice because I've kind of gotten used to it at this point that that's what games look like. 
Um, but Resident Evil 7 has some like the most striking use of HDR I've seen. Awesome. Yeah, I, I tried a little bit on PS4. I didn't really notice it. Um, and I decided to play it on. It looked better and played better on my PC. But um, yeah, I might have to take a look at that. That's cool. Um, or I, I mean, I could just hook up my PC to my monitor and I'd sure. be able to look at it that way too. Sure. So yeah, it's... Um, it's uh it's a great game. I can't I'm so excited to go back in and play this next DLC and I just love like I feel like Resident Evil because it went through sort of a long fallow period with 5 and 6 kind of had its reputation sort of dragged through the mud. Mm-hmm. The main numbered Resident Evil series has one of the highest batting averages in game history. Like yeah. 1 2 3 4 7 holy hell that is five phenomenal games where like my least favorite of those is three and I think three is a great game. So it's uh, I just I love this series and, and I'll have to I have uh, Code Veronica sitting on my Xbox. I'll have to play at some point too because uh, that one was basically made as a numbered game and then had the number taken off of mm-hmm. it. So I should play that at some point too. Yeah, no, Resident Evil is great. It is, yeah, it just feels... Obviously, we're, like, coming to the Resident Evil 7 conversation very late here, but, like, yes. it does feel really nice to have, like, Resident Evil be, like, a, an ongoing thing still in games. Because, yeah, particularly after 6, which I did not play for good reason, uh, like, the conversation around Resident Evil was so dire that it felt like it would not have been surprising if the series mostly kind of, like, went away, at least for a long time after that. Um, and seven is like so good. And then they did the remakes. Um, and then now eight's coming out. It's like, yeah, they've like, it's rare. You get a franchise that is this old, you know, that goes back to the mid nineties in games all the way to the PS one to be able to reinvent itself so powerfully while keeping the core of what it is still there. Like Resident Evil seven, it is different in a lot of ways, but is so identifiably Resident Evil game more so than like four does to me. It feels like it, this is like core Resident Evil. Um, it's classic like it's yeah. it's four was four is very much still resident evil but it's a, it's more of a reinvention of what resident evil is than seven is like yeah the move to the kind of shooter that four is is more different than the move to fps like I agree. the move to first person resident evil seven honestly feels like a more true to resident evil version of what the original games are doing with the fixed backgrounds than just a normal over the shoulder third person adaptation because what those background like if you play like the remake of Resident Evil 1 the GameCube version with the beautiful beautiful art you're not looking at your character you're looking at the environments and you're just so into that level of it and that's what 7 gives you in the first person um and it is one of the best art direction in a game I've seen in forever it's so good the zombies in 7 are by far the coolest they've ever been in like a Resident Evil game um, it's just awesome. I am Capcom as a whole is just having a renaissance where yeah. they're doing this and and Devil May Cry and Monster Hunter all on the backs of the RE engine that was made for Seven, and it feels like that whole process is just like revitalized everything, and that's really fucking cool. Yeah, because Capcom is just one of those developers that goes back to like the roots of modern video games. Um, and yeah, it is definitely that thing where it felt like they lost their way for a while, and then now having them come back and be like. We're consistently making some of the best games that are coming out in multiple different franchises. Um, yeah, Capcom's kicking ass. 
and I'm just... and some of the most like technically proficient. Like I mm-hmm. think they're up there with like Bethesda or not Bethesda, but um, id Software and Doom yeah. of like these games that are incredibly scalable across hardware. Um, you know, so you can have the RE engine running Monster Hunter Rise on Switch and looking like it was like, how did they make that for the Switch? But then you can also have a Resident Evil Seven or Eight or the remix that can run on pretty much anything fairly well. Um, it's really really cool. Yeah, and outside of Monster Hunter, which is like a much more expensive game because of the fucking crazy monster bullshit, like they're mostly targeting 60 frames. So it's like Resident Evil 7 and I know 8 based on like what I've seen from the stuff that came out from the demo. Um, and then obviously Devil May Cry for very good reason. They're all targeting high frame rates, including on the previous generation consoles. Um, yes. So yeah, they've just got their priorities straight. It's just Capcom's kicking ass. Resident Evil 8's yeah. going to be very good, I think. I, I want the Mega Man reinvention, Capcom. What what is what is the Mega Man game done with the RE engine? I think someone needs to figure that out. You I'm know? serious. Like yeah. like what is the like like they did like Mega Man Eleven and it's like another sort of side scroller, but 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 like I want them to kind of apply that this same level of creativity to some of their other like cool old franchises that are sort of dead, you know? Um, because there's a lot you could do with it. Yeah, so I th- I think Mega Man would be hard like I, th- I feel like there's probably a good reason why they have not, in a long time, tried to do, let's do a 3D Mega Man, um, which is what it would end up being if they're trying to do, like, a big budget version right. of the game. I You know, they could probably do it, but I think that, that I believe be it can be. I, th- I think they have a lot of smart people. I yeah. believe it could be done. Anyway, um, but there's there's a lot of fun. They're, they're doing all the old Mega Man collections, so I'm perfectly happy. They've, they've, they've kept their past alive, which is the most important part. Uh, so... All good. Um, I have also, Sean, I have played a couple hours of new Pokemon Snap. Cool. There's a new Pokemon Snap game. It is absolutely goddamn delightful. Uh, It is shockingly gorgeous on the Nintendo Switch. It's a beautiful game because they don't have to worry about, like, you walking around and anything like that. You're just going through the field. So it's almost like they've got, you know, little movies playing. Um, It's very fun. It's Pokemon Snap. Like, this is a game that, like, the review of the game is the title. Yeah. If the if the idea of a new Pokemon Snap game interests you, you should buy it. That's it. And I I will have more to say next week, I'm sure when I've put a lot more time into it, but it is delightful. The formula is so winning. You just go through these beautiful environments and you see Pokemon in their natural habitats and you snap pictures of them and then you get your pictures graded and then you save your pictures and you edit them and you play with them and then you go back and do more and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it's even got Todd from the original game is your, like, mentor. There's all sorts of cool stuff in it. Uh, it's very good. It's the first Pokemon game that's voice acted, which is kind of hmm. crazy. And you can listen to it in English or Japanese. Um, it's great. It's, it's uh, I will, again, I'll say more next week and I'll maybe share some photos at some point. But, yeah, if you want a Pokemon Snap game, but a new one, here you go. Have you thrown an apple at a Pokemon's head yet? Yes. Okay, good. That's all I needed to hear. Yeah. There was a quagsire. He was sitting by a little lake, and I got a lot of good pictures of him from the back, and I wanted him to turn around, and I hit him on the head, and he rubbed his head. looked sad, and I was sad. Because I'm like, I wanted you to eat the apple, not get hurt by it. But there you go. I want them to get hurt by the apple, and then I want to make art out of their pain. Okay, do you want to talk about the news? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? Well, Sean, our first piece of news this week is one of the sadder pieces of news... I've ever had to report on on this podcast, uh, which is the death of Shunsuke Kikuchi, 
who was the longtime composer for Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball GT. Um, he, in fact, was part of the like original Akira Toriyama anime team from the original Dr. Slump anime, mm -hmm. which then that whole team went on to Dragon Ball and then to Dragon Ball Z. Uh, he did not score Dragon Ball GT, um, but he did all the movies, all 13 DBZ movies, all three of the original Dragon Ball movies, the uh, 20th, no, no, the, the Jump uh, Super Anime Tour special, whatever. I guess it wasn't an anniversary special, but it was in 2008. His music is in that. Um, it's in all sorts of Dragon Ball video games. Uh, Dragon Ball Z Kakarot, uh, he didn't work on, but they, they adapt all of the, the different Kikuchi music throughout that game. Um, if you have ever engaged with Dragon Ball, you have heard Shunsuke Kikuchi music. Um, and he died this week uh, at the age of 89, passed away from pneumonia. Um, and, you know, it is, you guys all know how much I love Dragon Ball. You've seen the pictures of my stupidly large Dragon mm -hmm. Ball shelf collection. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I fell in love with it as an anime is Kikuchi's music. You know, I remember when, okay, this is going to date us all. But uh, back in the day, Sean, uh -huh. on TV, Dragon Ball would be dubbed and it would have a different musical score because they yes. were bastards and they replaced the great music with shitty music. And I can hear the Falconer fans coming for me right now and I don't give a shit. Shunsuke Kikuchi's music is better. Uh, it's just a fact. It's a science fact. And you would watch it and it'd be fun. And then I would sometimes get some of the DVDs. And back then, anime was sold in three to four episodes a pop on DVD and VHS. And on DVD, you would have the, the dub with the new music... Or the Japanese with the old music. And back then, you know, I would get one DVD at a time. And I would have those four episodes to tide me over for maybe weeks before I worked up enough allowance money or something to get another one. And I would just watch those episodes over and over. And I would switch between the English and the Japanese. And I would listen to both. And I fell in love with the Japanese cast. But I also just fell in love with the Japanese music. Because it is so special and so good. Um... And, you know, I think we talk a lot in anime adaptations, like we did with, with Demon Slayer the last couple of weeks, about how well an anime captures, like, some part of the manga's art style. We don't talk enough about how, how does music capture the manga, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think the ultimate, all-time best example of that is Shunsuke Kikuchi for Dragon Ball, because you turn on any of his music for the lifetime of this series... And you hear it, and you hear the horns, the big horns he's always doing, and the strings, and the there's this sense of liveliness and fun and joy, but also sort of you know danger and drama, um, and 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 just the kind of mystical out there of it all, and it just sounds like Dragon Ball. I don't know how else to say that, but it sounds like Akira Toriyama's manga come to musical life. Um, and I adore it so much. I have listened to those the score albums that, that there's a big three uh, CD soundtrack album that you can find that is a really good collection of his music. And it's amazing. It's amazing stuff. And it is another, you know, loving Dragon Ball at this point means sadly a lot of the people involved with it are passing away. Um, and this one definitely hurts. Uh, he hasn't worked on the series in a long time, obviously. Um, but also the series has just never quite been the same without him. I like Norihito Sumitomo's music now and then in the Super era. I think his score for Broly was fantastic. But it never quite feels like Dragon Ball to me without Shunsuke Kikuchi. Um, and, you know, it, it won't again. And that is sad. So rest in peace to a phenomenal anime composer. Yeah, I mean, as someone who um, 
you know, started with the English dub and that was like, I mean, I only watched Dragon Ball Z on TV as it aired on like Toonami and I didn't own any like home video version of it other than like a couple of the movies. I think we had like a VHS tape of the Trunks episode where they find the cells uh, like carcass or whatever that he has like grown out of. I remember having that episode. Good episode. Um, Good one yes. to own. Um, but so mostly, but obviously if we, uh, for a VHS tape, there was just, it was just the English version. Right. Um and so for like most of my life into like high school, the only exposure I really had to Dragon Ball was just the original Funimation version, which obviously has the Bruce Falconer music, which like was something that I feel like the English fandom has like tricked themselves into thinking was good because remixes of his themes can be good because some of the yes. melodies are good. Um, like Dragon Ball Z Legacy of Goku 2 has great music and it uses a lot of the Falconer melodies. Um, it's but, perfect video game chiptune music. It's yes, great for that. But how it's used in the TV show is god-awful. Um, and you don't realize it's god-awful until you watch the Japanese version with Kikuchi's music or, like, modern versions oftentimes will just use the English with Kikuchi uh, score. Um, and then you realize, oh, this is what this is supposed to be. Um, because the Falconer music, outside of, I think he got a little bit better at it in the boost stuff, but, like, not by much... Um, he would only ever really score to the action and then in like the action scenes and then he would score to the action or they'd use the music in that Mickey Mouse mousing kind of way where it would every time it would cut, it would cut to, oh, Krillin's on screen. Let's use a Krillin song. Vegeta's on screen. Vegeta song. Oh, Cell's on screen. A Cell song. And it would just cut that way. Um, and it's terrible and it kills your brain. Um, and then the Kikuchi score has so much life to it. It has so much breadth to it. It covers the whole scope of of what Dragon Ball as a franchise covers, meaning it also evolves along with Dragon Ball as Dragon Ball changes to become more action and drama focused over the course of the original manga run. Um, and then certainly once you get into Z and stuff, uh, but it always has that like lightness of heart and humor and character to it, as well as drawing strong inspiration from things like Kung Fu cinema and those scores, as well as I feel like Kikuchi's music with Dragon Ball, while it's very different it, the approach as a composer reminds me of Akira Ifukube's scores on Godzilla movies and all of the stuff he works on. Um, I actually Shaka agree with Shibu. that. I think that's a good connection. Yeah. They think it's like they have a certain sensibility that like very few film composers would have um, in how they like embodied the like what the series was through their music and a willingness to use a wide range of interesting and kind of like eccentric instrumentation to create the effect that they were going for. Um, and then critically with Kikuchi's music, it's also like made with the understanding that the music's not playing every second of every episode, right? It's like the music is there to accentuate and add impact to what's happening. So, you know, there are stretches of silence where tension builds and then the music comes in and like that, um, score so lives with what that series is. And it's so like a point in time, like it's the kind of thing where, you can't use it for new Dragon Ball stuff because it just feels like it needs to exist with Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z and, and the movies. And, like, it is it is that series, like, captured in a moment in time so perfectly um, that, yeah, it is one of the all-time great, like, TV scores ever. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's sad to have him pass, but it's happy that he lived such a long life leaving behind such a, like, powerful legacy of the work that he did. And hopefully seeing how much it touched people mm -hmm. over generations at this point, I think it's safe to say, you know, um, it's been 
God, since 96, since he was like actively scoring the series. So over 20 years now, 25 years. That's wild. And it is an insane legacy. Um, you know, I like that what you said about like how, right, you, you really couldn't use it for the series now, which you kind of see with the, if you watch the score replaced version of Dragon Ball Kai, where Kenji Yamamoto was caught for plagiarism. So they had to rip all his music out and put the Kikuchi stuff back in. And it, it doesn't work as well with the recuts because it's not that's not what the music was written for. Yeah. Um, and it's some it's a reason why Dragon Ball's slow pace um, in the anime, especially well, especially once you get to Z, um, has never bothered me the way it does with some anime. Like certainly, I'm not going to go out of my way to say that like the 30 episode Frieza fight is fully warranted, right? Mm-hmm. But like. There's something about, I think, Kikuchi's music especially kind of helps sell the pace in a way that I don't know if they would be able to do without it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just, it, it's so beautiful. Um, you know, the way a lot of this stuff worked is that um, because they did these movies twice a year, the movies would get a completely original score. And then you would go in uh, and take the music in the movies, and those would become major themes for the show going on. Uh, and so listening to the scores for the movies is a lot of fun. And it's the main reason to watch the Dragon Ball movies, um, mm-hmm. because the music is so good. And a lot of your favorite Dragon Ball themes come from the movies and then get worked in in different ways. Like one of my favorite examples is the main... If you go back and watch Dragon Ball Movie 2, which I think in English is called Sleeping Princess in Devil's Castle... But it's the second Dragon Ball nosy movie. So it's a really crazy one. It's like a vampire castle universal horror movie. It's very bizarre. But the main theme of that, like for Dracula, like the the main like devilish theme is this like big like gothic choir. And you'll be listening and you're like, wait a minute, that's Piccolo's death theme. Because that's what they Mm -hmm. used in Dragon Ball Z when Piccolo sacrifices himself for Gohan. And it's so touching. But it was written for a completely different thing in Dragon Ball Movie 2. Um, and there's so many fun things you'll see like that. But the movies have fantastic scores. I think like Dragon Ball Z Movie 1, Dead Zone is... Ugh, that score is so good. Uh, movie 9, the Bardock... Not Bardock. Um, the Bojack movie has... When Gohan goes Super Saiyan 2 in that movie. We've played that song on the podcast before. One of my favorite musical moments. Um, but it's it's the whole series. It's such a unique character. You don't hear much like that on TV, on anime. It's just, it's so, so good. I love it to death. Yeah, like thinking of, for me, the Kikuchi, like, songs and, like, pieces that are most effective for me. Like, one thing that, like, I think he is or was the best at is doing instrumental versions of the opening and ending theme songs. Yes, um, yes. Which is a very common technique. Like, it's it's pretty ubiquitous in any show um, that you do instrumental versions of those melodies um and he did it better than anybody particularly when you get to boo um i think the boo section it's one of the reasons why like i think i have so much love for that section even though it is like one of the weaker parts of the entire run of dragon ball for sure like his versions of particularly we were angels which there's a bunch of different instrumental versions of that which is the ending theme for that section of the show they're so good they're so unbelievably good and it like gives a whole new energy um, to that section because obviously they had been using the same um, main themes forever up until that point um, for all of Dragon Ball Z until you get to there. So you have this whole like re-injection of energy with the new opening and ending theme there and he does such a good job with that. But for me, the best song, that one that is like for me, like maybe the most distinctive is the Spirit Bomb theme that is so powerful. 
Um, and I remember very distinctly the first time I watched through the series properly in Japanese and got to that theme um, that um, is, it's so characterized by these long stretches of silence broken up by bum, 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 and then long stretches. And that's one of the things I mean by it's got a very Ifukube type sensibility because that's a very Ifukube kind of song. Um, and then it's swelling eventually to this big hit um, where like the whole uh, orchestra basically comes in. Uh, and that song to me is like, every time it comes on, you're just waiting to just stand up and start applauding once it like crescendos because it's just one of like, I think the best songs in any anime I've ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I totally agree with you on the, uh, the theme song arrangements. There's a track called Son Goku is the Strongest After All is mm -hmm. how you'll find it written yeah. on uh, certain soundtracks. And it is a version of We Got a Power uh, with some other stuff thrown in there. And it is just the most... Like, you want to go, like, run a lap after hearing it. It's yes. so awesome and inspiring. Um, it's such good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. He and Ifakube were fairly close in age, like, 14 years apart. So I feel like that's very much like a uh, a generation that, like, kind of no longer exists. You know, that kind of movie scoring. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's so good. And... Um, you know, we will have, we've, we've gotten many years of enjoyment out of that music. We will have many, many more. As long as people are watching anime, they will be hearing this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and I love that it lives on in the games. I love that. I still have not gone back and played all of Kakarot, but I love that they like gave it so much love there. Um, yeah, because it's the same thing that it's like very hit or miss. This is true of like every anime game because licensing for that stuff can be weird. Um, but like some, a lot of Dragon Ball games don't have it or only have a little bit of it. But Kakarot, it felt like they were, it was so important for what that game is trying to do that they get that music, and it adds so much to that game. Yeah. the I know the Japanese versions of the Sparking series, which was released here as the very weirdly titled Budokai Tenkaichi, mm -hmm. um, had it, but the English versions did not, and I think there were some other ones. So yeah, Kakarot, I think, was the first time there was a global release with his music in it. Um, but yeah, it's very cool. I hope we get more of that. It's awesome. And uh, rest in peace, Kikuchi-san. Uh, yeah. Thank you for thank you for the music. All right, a little bit of other news. Uh, we were going to cover this last week, but sort of ran out of time. So I wanted to mention Sony has reversed course on their choice to delist the PS3 and PS Vita web stores and stop you from buying those games anymore. Um, for now, they will be keeping those up in perpetuity. Um, they have chosen not to do that. They are shuttering the PSP store in full, but that was already mostly shuttered, is my mm. understanding. And obviously, if the Vita still sell yeah. Anything that was on the PSP digital store is on the PS Vita digital store. And there were always some PSP games that just never were digital, um, like Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep. Um, so all of that stuff is still up. Tokyo Jungle lives to fight another day. If you've got your PS3, you can get your Pomeranian friend uh, and play that. Um, this is good. I'm glad yes. that they, they heard the message. Yeah, this is good. Um, surprising. Like, I didn't think um, like any company would change course on something like this. Just, it feels like it's like the inevitable march of capitalism is, yeah, shut that shit down. We're not, you know, like we're losing a nickel or whatever a year because nobody's buying any of this and it costs us whatever in electricity to keep the servers up. Um, and like, there's like a dude in a closet somewhere whose job is to just like make sure those servers aren't broken. Um, and then, yeah, for them to reverse course, like obviously it's this thing of where it can't help but feel like a stay of execution. Like they've said in perpetuity, um, but like, 
I'm I'm guessing that probably means we'll end up revisiting this probably around the time the PS5 is winding down, which should be a good long time. I'm guessing sometime around there, this is probably going to resurface in some way. Um, yeah. But but it is good for like now that that is, um, yeah that I've you know I've got that PS Vita. I don't know if there's another game I want to buy on it, but if there is, it's nice to know that if that time comes, I'm like, oh wait, shit, there's a PSP game that I want to buy. That that's a thing that I can just do. Um, without having to worry about it yeah i mean i you know these things should be kept up in one form or another i guess what i really hope is just that it makes someone at sony sit up and recognize the need for like a fuller backwards compatibility Mm -hmm. solution and realizing that you know if they had some kind of way to play a lot of what is accessible on ps3 and vita on your ps4 or 5 that level of fan outcry wouldn't exist you know, um, like I, I think if if Xbox were to stop you buying games on your 360, which I don't know if you can or I forget, but whatever the case, it doesn't matter because on your Xbox One you can get anything that's compatible still, and that's just going to be up there forever as long as they're doing this stuff with the Xbox and and it's an ongoing platform. Um, and it's just like you know, I talked about this last time we talked about this. All the PS1 classics, all the PS2 classics. There's a lot of PSP and Vita games and all sorts of stuff that just like you know, the the lift of getting that stuff running can't be that high on hardware this powerful, especially with stuff that simple. Like, if you can get the PS1 games running on your Vita, um, you, you can do it. And and so I, I just, I, I would love to see a little bit more of that. And, you know, maybe getting some of those, you know, they got all the, like, big marquee PS3 games. They will sell you again in a remastered form. But there are a lot of little things that slipped through the cracks, you know. Where is Tokyo Jungle HD? Um, you Where's know, Tokyo Jungle kind of... 2? That's what I want to know. Yeah. God damn it. That's very true. I know. Tokyo Jungle, if you've never played it, it's, uh, especially if you go back to the early days of our podcast, I feel like we talked about that game a lot. It's a good game. Because it was like, yeah. Um, anyway, so I'm glad that they changed their mind. I think a lot of the big questions about the future of all this stuff are still up in the air. I, like, I think, yeah, the question is when to me. It's not if. Right. Um, I think like yeah. it will happen. Um yeah, like, I think on the backwards compatibility thing, I saw, like, around all of this, there's obviously, like, a lot of discussion around that. And I saw someone make an interesting point of specifically with PS1, I think this is, would be a bigger issue, is that I suspect for that it's less... I mean, they can make fucking PS1 games run on whatever. Like, obviously, it's a... Be it like, you know, it's, like, a less than a megabyte of data for a bunch of those games. You can make it run on whatever the fuck you want to. Um, I, I suspect the problem with that is that these probably would not be able to sell a lot of those games because you'd have to make new licensing deals. Um, because yeah. because the PS3 backwards compatibility stuff itself is now old enough that that is not going to necessarily carry over. In the same way that that's, for people who are curious, why the Xbox, original Xbox in particular, but then the Xbox 360 also, why that is not a comprehensive backwards compatibility thing on the Xbox, is that a lot of that stuff is never going to be backwards compatible because they're not going to be able to resell it because they don't have the rights right and so that's why like tony hawk games and i think guitar hero games a lot of that stuff in particular will never because it's got all this licensed music and so they don't they can't don't have the ability to resell it they'd have to make a new contract um so that's what i like i don't know if that's for sure like what would be keeping it from happening um but like i thought that was an interesting observation that like i think in my head because that stuff had already been backwards compatible on ps3 i kind of ignored that that would be a thing but now that the PS3 is so old, I suspect that that is probably another one of those 
frustrating roadblocks that would keep some of that stuff. Um, it doesn't excuse a lot of that because a lot of it Sony could have backwards compatible, but I don't think we'd ever have something that would look like a comprehensive backwards compatibility for rights reasons, if nothing else. No, and I and yeah. you know I don't think anyone reasonable is asking for that. Like that's we know we all know that's a lift, yeah. right? And that's okay. Um, and the PS3 is special anyway because the PS3 just had a PS1 inside it. Like it could natively run every PS1 game, and that's why there were so many that you could buy without buying the disc because it was what you were buying was just an ISO. Like yeah. it was just the disc, um, and that's why it was like it was such a comprehensive catalog they had. Um, and that is one nice thing about the PS3. Like if 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 you have that, um, you can hook that up to a modern TV, and any PS1 disc will play in it. You know, that's one great thing about that system. Um, but like you know, there's there's some obvious ones that like let's say we're on the PS1 Classic. They're very bad little mini system they put out, like Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. It is fucking bizarre that Metal Gear Solid is not a playable game on any modern platform. That is really fucking weird. Yeah. And I don't know if that's Sony or it's Konami or it's a little bit of both, but like. Uh, it's an important game. I feel like is an uncontroversial statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Metal Gear so. Solid One. That was one of the ones where I have not like properly played through that game because you couldn't. You had to go through some like weird voodoo to get the PS One Classics version to play on Vita because that was right. like one of those weird ones. Um, yeah, I played it on the PS Three through PS One Classics. Um, it was great, and I I love that. I, th I think that's one of the better Metal Gear. That and Three are my favorites. Um, I mean, I like One, Two, Three a lot too gets talky and annoying and has weird incest stuff but you know um yeah <laughs> anyway that's a tangent yes. but related to all of this sean uh this is a really interesting piece of news that came out last week there is a u.s district court judge that has allowed a lawsuit to move forward against apple over their use in the itunes store of the word buy in purchasing movies and tv shows the argument in this lawsuit being that you aren't actually buying the concept on Apple's web store, you're getting a little license for it, and it can be, and in some cases has been, revoked. You can lose access to it. So this is Judge John Mendez. He wrote, quote, In common usage, the term buy means to acquire possession over something. It seems plausible, at least at the motion-to-dismiss stage, that reasonable consumers would expect their access couldn't be revoked. So that's the argument, that buy means you get it, not that you get it and then we'll take it from you. Um, Apple argues there is no standing to this case because this is speculative, the potential loss of access in the future, not present tense loss of access now. Uh, but Mendez writes that the injury is one of false or misleading marketing as the word buy is misrepresentative, creating economic injury by misleading the consumer. So that's why they're standing for this case. Um, injunctive relief in this case could force Apple to change how it sells content Amazon is facing a similar lawsuit over Prime Video. And of course, this is not really about Apple. This is the entire digital goods industry. Yeah. Like Apple is not doing anything unique here in using the word buy on something you cannot actually buy. And I, I wanted to bring this up alongside the Sony news because this is something that the video game industry is really going to have to face now that we are firmly in the era where the default is selling digital games. Like, mm -hmm. I think over the last couple of years, the swap finally happened where yes. digital games are selling more than physical, right? Yes, yeah. That um, last, last year, motivated by the pandemic, it, for all marketplaces, it is now over 50%. For some of them, yes. like, like particularly for like Sony and Microsoft, partially motivated again by the pandemic, it like really swung over. Um, so that yes. it wasn't even just like a 50-50, it's like a 55 or 60 split in digital's favor. 
And of course, that is the exact same problem, because when you buy a digital game from one of these services, as the Sony thing with the, the PS3 and Vita delistings and all of that kind of teaches us, um, you're, you're getting a license for it. You're getting the option to download it from them, but you are not owning it. It's not something you can take and and move around yourself and like store it yourself in perpetuity the way if you buy a dvd you do own that dvd like if if you buy a dvd of mad max fury road warner brothers cannot one day decide oh shit we used a song in mad max that is no longer like we don't have the copyright for and then they don't send someone house to house to take your dvds they could do that on a digital platform they could just revoke mad max fury road entirely and you would never be able to watch it on those platforms again um which is why a lot of people paranoid people like physical media for all of these reasons right um and so this is something that is going to have to be figured out. And I actually think we're going to see more, not less, of these lawsuits in the future because it's, a, it's just a question that is going to have to be resolved legally of what does the word buy mean? Is it reasonable to say the meaning just shifts in the digital era and we all know, okay, buy means that this service will continue to give me access to it as long as they can, but that's not what buy used to mean. You know, the judge is saying here that, like, this is not how consumers understand the word buy. And I think there's a debate to be had on all of this, but it is something that's going to have to be shaken out. Um, and I'm really curious what's going to happen with it. And and Apple is often the target for these at, like, the first stage because Apple is the, the biggest, like, kid on the block. But it's going to come for everybody. And I, and I think video games is actually one where it's going to be a really serious topic of discussion eventually um, because we are so firmly in the new digital era. Yeah, like it would be, you know, I, I feel like what this is going to inevitably lead to is, I mean, either it getting dismissed because Apple has Apple money. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, them just like wielding that power to have this just like spin around in court for years and then eventually just kind of goes away um, is probably what's going to happen. Um, although, like you said, like maybe it builds enough momentum where there are enough cases, there's like enough like class action lawsuits and stuff around this topic. Um I wonder if then we just like live in a world where instead of it saying buy, it just says purchase license and then they dust their shoulders off and go, well, it doesn't, you know, like in a market that was more competitive, that might mean something that if other like marketers or like storefronts could use the word buy, but Apple couldn't, but the market's not competitive enough. If they just change the language to purchase license, I don't think it would affect anything for them. Um, so I, I want to say though, Apple has had to make changes like this before. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, one that happened in, for a misleading marketing in, in film and TV, this one's really fascinating because I actually got money for this, um, was when Breaking Bad's last season aired, do you remember how they split it in two? So it was season five and five B sort of, mm -hmm. um, and AMC and then all of their digital partners decided to be very sneaky and they sold you. Like, if you bought Breaking Bad for season five, which aired one year, and then the other half of season five aired another year, they were effectively two different seasons. But they sold you Breaking Bad the fifth season, and you bought your license for it. And that's how I used to watch Breaking Bad back in the days. I would buy the iTunes license, uh -huh. and I would watch it as it came out. And then when season six, but season five technically, aired the next year, they were like, then they sold that as the final season. So it was the fifth season <laughs> and the final season. And they were separate licenses. And and a class action lawsuit started at iTunes. But of course, iTunes was not the only one doing this. But iTunes was the one that was sued. Um, and iTunes was sued saying, 
well, you didn't give them the fifth season. Like, this is season five. The contracts say season five. You only gave them eight out of 16 episodes of season five. So if you bought season five and season six, the final season, which is how I did it, they refunded you the value of the sixth season uh, and gave you that money to do whatever you wanted to do with. Um, and so I had like 35 bucks in Apple credit for that. Um, another one is, if you remember, Apple apps in the App Store used to say free if the app was free and you clicked on it. Um, that, for legal reasons, now says get. And there's a little message below that says offers in-app purchases. Mm -hmm. They can't use the word free anymore. So... This kind of pressure has changed things. And, and I think with the Git thing, I think that was a proactive change they made to head off lawsuits. Yeah. But like, uh, we've seen the terminology and some of these things. Like, the Breaking Bad one is funny because it's just such an egregious, like, that was yeah. AMC being yeah, utter Yeah, because to be fair, I mean, I don't want to take Apple's side in anything, but Apple has absolutely nothing to do with that. Like, they're not the people who right. labeled that on their fucking service. Uh, that is a hilarious, like, asshole, like... Like, yep. like that's what it should be in like on Wikipedia when you go to like number of seasons in the little sidebar. It should say one to five plus final. Like it should yes. just be known as a show that has five seasons and a final season because that is such a hilarious concept. It's they they could have just sold it as season five part one and it, they would have been fine. Yes. But they had to refund all this stuff. So yeah, that that is that is an interesting case because it's not Apple's fault, but it's something that happened on their platform that they were then on the hook for. Um, so I actually think this kind of thing could lead somewhere. Um, if for no other reason than, as you say, the fix might be as simple as changing the terminology we use, and then there is no legal issue. Um, and so who knows? I'm very curious. I, I think this is, because I do think there is a, a reasonable, and I hate to say reasonable because this is like a pro-corporate argument, so I don't really agree with it, but there is an argument to be made that like, well, what else are you going to do? The definition of buy has changed in DRM and all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not unreasonable to use the word buy. Um, I, I think that argument can be made in good faith. But I also think, like, you know, there's a reason why, you know, in, like, the PC gaming community, things like uh, GOG that will sell you without DRM are very popular because people just like that idea <laughs> that you can get it. And, yeah. like, if GOG goes under but you saved the file somewhere, it's yours. Do with it as you will, you know? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I I think it would be an unreasonable argument to say that the meaning of word has by of by has changed in that dramatic of a fashion. Like, right. I think the lawsuit is one hundred percent accurate. Like, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know how that mm -hmm. applies to the law. But like, you know, as someone who is a high school English teacher that has to like d deal with linguistic stuff as my profession, um, like I would not argue at all that the word by has changed. That, like, like I, I mean, because obviously, Jonathan, I think you, like what you just said, you wouldn't argue that. I don't think a reasonable argument could be made. Um, I okay. think it would be unreasonable to take the stance that the word buy has this, like, asterisk next to it now in the mind of an average consumer that says, well, technically, I'm not really owning this. Technically, I'm just owning a license to be able to view this, but only with, right. like, one to three people. And I don't technically have the license to view this in front of, like, a group of 20. Like, because then I'd have to have a display, blah, 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 blah. You know, like, all the weird legalese that is around that bullshit. Like, that is not how we use the word buy. Um, so it's like, I think the lawsuit was 100% on point. I just think the thing that's going to happen here is if it gains traction, I think it will be like that Git thing on the ice store where, you know, I suspect that that did not really affect anything for Apple in terms of like the number of app free apps purchased or in-app purchases made in free-to-play apps. I don't suspect that that change made anything meaningful difference there. 
And if they change the the wording to purchase license or whatever, they would they'd probably come up with something catchier. Like Git is a very good, very clever get around to the word free that it does not communicate to somebody something meaningfully different than the word free, but it but it yes. is not saying that it is free. It's just that you're getting it. So, and this is why I think this is a big issue for video games specifically, because for movies and TV shows, this is losing relevance every day as streaming becomes bigger. Yes. Disney does not have a problem here in terms of are they selling you or not, because their their focus is Disney Plus, which is an app you subscribe to with no expectation, reasonable or otherwise, that you own that content, right? Yeah. Nobody who subscribes to Disney Plus thinks they own in perpetuity 101 Dalmatians on that service, right? You know that as long as you have the service, you have access to what is on the service. And it's like any channel going back. You know, that's how channels and networks work, right? Yeah, that you don't even have the expectation that while you are subscribed to it, you have access in perpetuity to the stuff that was on the service when you subscribe to it. Because stuff comes in and out of the service. Like, you have no, like, claim to any control or ownership over any dynamic of the service other than the fact that you're subscribed to it. And that sentence you just said, Sean, is the sentence that executives of these companies say to themselves in the mirror as they jerk off in the morning exactly because that is what they want they want the world and this is why this is why everyone has a streaming platform this is why wb has hbo max and paramount has paramount plus and disney has disney plus and nbc has peacock and everyone wants this is because the world where they don't have to sell you anything other than a subscription where you have no power no ownership no rights is the world they want. That is the dream. That's what they've been building to. Physical media is a real uh, inconvenience to these companies because it gives you some level of ownership over their content. They don't want that. That's why streaming services are so attractive. And in movies and TV shows, that's what we're quickly moving towards. And like, I think we're going to be at a point pretty soon where Disney will no longer be selling physical media Mm -hmm. or like video ownership quote-unquote in itunes even i think it'll just be behind the disney plus wall and that's what they'll be fine with. yeah they're gonna close Um, that vault and throw away the key basically it's like we put it all back in the vault and like fuck off motherfuckers like you can look through the window of the vault over there if you give us six bucks a month that's exact that's exactly it but that's true like that's what they want is to have the vault and nobody can take stuff out of the vault but you can pay to come hang out in the vault for a little bit right yeah that's what they want with video games, that is much harder. The only like durable video game streaming service or subscription service is Game Pass. And that very well might be a point to the future because this also gets around the issue. If you're on Game Pass, you might be a little annoyed if a game you were playing gets taken off Game Pass. But they let you know ahead of time and you know, they have all the listings and, and there's other stuff. And you go, okay, well, I didn't own it. I didn't own it. I, own, I had a subscription to Game Pass. That's what they want. Yeah. And, and that's going to happen more and more. Um, and, and we'll see. The big hurdle with doing that with video games so far is you can't stream video games, as Google Stadia taught us. Yes. Um, um, you have to download them. and They're big things. And, and they're also like the, the expense is just higher. You know, a movie you sell for 15 to 20 bucks, a game you sell for 60 to 70 bucks. So that's why this has been more of a challenge for video games. Um, and that's why I think this issue will hit video games harder than it will hit, like, iTunes. Um, you know, like, notice that music isn't included in this lawsuit because no one cares because yeah. everyone streams all their music through stuff. This has already happened completely to music. It's almost happened completely to movies and TV. Video games are the last frontier for this. 
Thinking of uh, Google Stadia, Jonathan, did you see the news over this week that Google Stadia has added in the feature for its web store that it now has a search browser? I saw that and I laughed so fucking hard. I didn't know they didn't have a search function. Google, Google, Uh Google didn't have a search function in their game store. I feel like that should be the title of the book about Google Stadia. Google didn't have a search function in their game store. And that is just like, that tells you, you don't even need the book. You just need the title. That tells you the rise and fall of Stadia in one sentence, right? Yeah. So we'll see, uh, like, in the coming years whether or not, like, how much of Stadia's failure is... It's, like, too expensive and difficult to manage game streaming services and all of that. And how much of it is that they were just so unbelievably fucking incompetent? Because that is mind-blowing to me that they did not have a search feature um, <laughs> in their in, in the Google-owned and operated game streaming service that you couldn't search. I mean, the thing is, like, when I use the service very briefly... To be fair, I never needed to search for anything because there's only like 10 games on there. So it's like I played Thumper, I played some Serious <laughs> Sam, I played some Destiny 2, all of which were just on the front page because there were like seven games at launch um, when it was for free. And then months later, I played the demo of Ubisoft Breath of the Wild game, whose name I can't remember. That's not Gods and Monsters. Um, uh, I played the demo of that game, and that demo was also just on their front page. So I've never had to search for anything because who's going to use Stadia that much? Uh but it is hilarious that like it took them that long to realize, oh, we should probably make it so that they can actually search for specific things in this storefront. It is so funny. It is so fucking funny. Anyway, do you want to move on and talk about um, a movie? Let's talk, Jonathan, about Batman and Robin. So Batman and Robin, this is part six of our Batman on film series. We are at the end of the 90s. Thank fuckity oh, Christ. Yes. Everything from here on out is at least more interesting to talk about, I will say. Oh, yeah. Even if we had to sit down and rewatch Batman v Superman, that is at least a more interesting movie to say things about. My fear with this conversation, Sean, is that it will be five minutes long. <laughs> because I have to be honest. I think if I, if you and I were sitting down and planning this series out ahead of time again, I might have just combined Batman Forever and Batman and Robin into one episode. Because <laughs> yeah. most of what I have to say about this movie, you can kind of cut and paste. It is, and it's even more ineptly made than Batman Forever, but it's very ineptly made. It looks cheap as shit. It looks like an Ed Wood movie, um, but in color, which makes it worse. Um, you know, it's, it's mostly poorly acted. It's, it's a little better than, than Batman Forever, but like, um, it's got just a terrible script. The serious parts are the worst parts of it. Um, it's, it's, look, are we saying anything new by saying Batman and Robin is a bad movie? No, I will say I do not hate it as much as I hate Batman Forever. I, I do hold that opinion. I'm, I'm, conf- so, I mean, it's a, let's just recognize it's a stupid conversation to have in the first place, it, which is better, Batman Forever, Batman Robin. It's like <laughs> having two different piles of garbage in front of you and saying, which is the better pile of garbage? It's garbage. Um, but, like, I don't know which one I would say is better or worse, because I think they're, I mean, they're both bad in so many very similar ways. But, but there is, like, this key difference between the two of them where... Batman and Robin, like, the schlocky, campy parts, which is specifically Poison Ivy and uh, Mr. Freeze, aren't bad. Like, they're fine. Like, I think Uma Thurman I like, Arnold Schwarzenegger I like in this movie. Like, in scenes that are focused on those characters can be, are fine. Um, they're not amazing, 
but they can buy, like, I can crack a smile because both Schwarzenegger and Uma Thurman are hamming it up. They know that they're hamming it up. They're doing their thing and they're having a good time with it. And that can be fun to watch. But all the Batman stuff in this fucking Batman movie is so <laughs> bad. It's yes. so, so unbelievably bad that it's worse to me. In, in some pretty significant ways than the Batman stuff in Batman Forever, which is also bad. I don't want to, in comparison, say that that's good. Um, but relative to this, I would say there is at least the spine of a Batman story that is in Batman Forever. They have to, you know, bend that spine very awkwardly to make it make any kind of sense. Uh, most notably, when we talk about that movie, they have the inexplicable moment at the beginning of the third act where Batman just decides to stop being Batman for no reason. Except for it's not for no reason, because there is a clear theme logic that Batman needs to have given up on being Batman. Because the point of that movie, what Batman Forever is about, is Batman needs to, a jaded, cynical Batman, needs to learn through his relationship with Robin that being Batman is important. That movie is terrible at telling that story. It's absolutely gone awful at telling it. But that story is in there. There is a spine of a story in there that you can imagine... After like a dozen rewrites in like getting a much better scriptwriter than fucking Akiva Goldsman, you could take some of like the germ of what that is and make it into a decent Batman movie. In Batman and Robin, I don't know what they're trying to do with the story other than it's like a lazy, bad retread of that dynamic of like Batman and Robin need to learn to work together, which we already, that's half of what Batman Forever was. But also the problem is that in Batman Forever, Robin is right when he says to Batman, you should be Batman. Robin is never right in this movie. Robin's this stupid piece of shit for the entirety of Batman and Robin, who for the most of the movie is just seduced by Poison Ivy for the entire like middle hour of this entire thing. He is continually going like, oh, you're just mad because she loves me not as much as you. And Batman goes, she's seducing you because she's the supervillain. Stop, Robin. And there's multiple scenes that go like that. And you can't have the movie then be... And then Batman should really learn to listen to Robin and team up with Robin and, and, like, learn how to be good buddies with him. When Robin's a stupid piece of shit for the whole movie, it's like there's no story for the Batman side of Batman and Robin. And so I don't know which one is better and which one is worse because they're both fucking terrible. But they're terrible in slightly more nuanced ways from each other. 100% agree with all of that. I think I lean towards Batman and Robin here which is a crazy sentence to say uh, because because of the villains. Like, mm -hmm. the thing that annoys me most in Batman Forever is the villains. It's the terrible Jim Carrey of it all and the utterly baffling, wasted Tommy Lee Jones of it all. And at least in Batman and Robin, especially because the 90s Batman movies are about the villains. Like, like that is like what's on the poster. They're all like the villains are always credited above Batman in the credits. Like in this one, Arnold Schwarzenegger gets top billing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like the villains are clearly where like the hearts of these movies are. And at least I think Arnold Schwarzenegger, the characterization of Mr. Freeze is unbelievably confused and is like has no idea what it's doing. But if you give Arnold Schwarzenegger an ice pun, he will make a meal out of it. He is good at that. Yeah. And he is fun to watch in that sense. And Uma Thurman, I actually think, is just genuinely good in this movie. Like, I think she is doing, like, Eartha Kitt in, like, 1966 Batman or Julie Newmar. Like, it's, I mean, she's being Catwoman. She's yes. not being Poison Ivy. But within that, like, she is actually very good at that. Like, she is 
Uh, like, the writing is not always up to her, obviously, but, like, this is something Uma Thurman can do, and she can do more convincingly than anyone in this or Batman Forever. Like, you could pluck Uma Thurman out of this movie and put her in 60s Batman, and she would feel right at home. She does know how to play this kind of thing in a way that, like, George Clooney is an amazing actor. He is not the kind of camp comic mm -hmm. genius you need to pull this off, right? Like, yeah. he's just not. And so he is really miscast here, as Val Kilmer was, because if you're giving him puns to do, he can't do that. He looks like he wants to die when he has to say, never leave the cave without it, or something like that, right? Um, and so, at least on the villain side, I enjoy that more. But that said, uh, I this movie feels interminably long oh, to God. me. Yeah. And I think it is like, and I agree, it's kind of like, where do you come down? Because I agree the Batman stuff is absolutely, it is worse than in Batman Forever. Like, <laughs> this is so weird. As bad as all the stuff with like Dr. Chase Meridian is in Batman Forever, at the very fucking minimum least, it gives the movie a spine. Yeah. Right? It's a, it's a broken spine. It's got, it has not been drinking its milk. Its bones are very weak and brittle. It's, it's cracked yeah. in a lot of places. It's very it's, awkwardly horny also in that movie, yes. that spine. Yeah, but, but it has a spine. This movie just is a collection of bones lying meekly on the floor. And yeah, the miscasting of George Clooney combined with the miscasting of Chris O'Donnell combined with the miscasting of Felicia Silverstone is a hell of a thing for that side of the movie. And poor Michael Gow or Michael Goff, however you say his name, just trying to hold it together as Alfred, as the only actor doing his thing in the movie. Um, it is interminably bad. And, like, this movie is so shapeless. It is, like, like basically, they put Mr. Freeze in prison, like, 45 minutes into this movie, simply because if they didn't, the movie wouldn't reach feature length. And they need, like, a good 45 minutes with him off the board so that the other characters can do random shit to pad this movie out to two hours. Right? Yeah. Am I wrong about that? No, That's yeah. why it's done. I mean, I was so shocked when I booted up this movie and looked at, like, this track bar or whatever on my uh, 4K Blu-ray that I watched it on um, and saw that it came to 125 minutes in length, which is, like, I was sure. There was no way... Batman and Robin, it was longer than 90 minutes. It couldn't possibly be. Like, how could it? Like, again, I have watched this movie. I have memories of watching this movie as a kid. Like, it must be 90 minutes long. Or, like, in that ballpark, it's it's a full two hours and five minutes. Uh, and, and, yes, it's a two-hour, five-minute movie that has nothing resembling a plot. Because to go back to, like, the Batman Forever comparison, while the villain performances are, like... Many times preferable in this movie. Like Uma Thurman uh, is about a thousand times better in this movie than Jim Carrey um, or Tommy Lee Jones in Batman Forever. At the very least, in like a plotting sense, the Riddler has a much clearer motivation as a villain in Batman Forever than like Mr. Freeze has the wife stuff. But he's the secondary villain. It feels like he's supposed to be. Poison Ivy has way more like meaningful screen time. But Poison Ivy, they, like, basically jettison the whole concept of the character out of her being, like, an eco-terrorist outside of the first interaction she has with Bruce Wayne. And it, like, never really comes up again. It's not really a thing. Like, I don't really know what her plan was because it just turns into Mr. Freeze's plan at some point. 
And well, she wants to kill everyone on Earth so her plants can grow. Like, that's pretty much it. Yeah, so it just, like, nothing about the Poison Ivy character sticks in terms of a theme or an arc or real characterization. She doesn't, like, you know, she doesn't feel like she pairs off with Batman in any way that's meaningful. Um, nor does Mr. Freeze in a way that at least Riddler has his like deranged hatred of Bruce Wayne that starts as an obsession with Bruce Wayne that turns into a hatred. It's like, it's done terribly, but it's a concept. There's no concept in this movie other than like very vaguely taking some elements from the cartoon for Mr. Freeze that are very out of place with the characterization of the character in the movie itself. And then just like, hoping that the fact that he has a wife that's on ice is enough to make him a character, which it's not. You have to integrate it into the story in some way because Batman has nothing to do with any of that shit. The closest they get is they just like randomly make it so that the disease that Alfred has, which is this incredibly rare disease, just happens to be the same disease that the wife is suffering from, which you only find out at, at the beginning of the third act. So it's like, it's not something that's integrated into the plot meaningfully. Like this is a movie that feels like it was written page by page while they were shooting it. And then about halfway through the movie, they decided they wanted to put Batgirl in it. And so they shot some shit with her in it because also Batgirl is in this movie and there's no reason for her to be. She interacts with nothing. And it's just this empty, it's this movie that is just empty and void of anything other than a couple of campy scenes that are like enjoyable in and of themselves. I agree. Yeah. I, I, I think I do not believe Batman and Robin is appreciably worse than Batman forever. I think like on the grand scale yeah. of things, I think these are pretty much equally terrible movies. Yes. I think the reason Batman and Robin is remembered in the public consciousness as the worst movie, which it is, like very clearly Batman and Robin is the one that shows up on like the worst movies of all time list, not Batman forever. And I think it is because of what you were just saying, Sean, which is that Batman Forever at least has the motions of, like, gesturing towards an actual story. Batman and Robin is so incompetent at those gestures. Like, it is... Because it has them a little bit. Alfred has his spiels about family, and Bruce, you have to accept family. And it's a nominally a family story. And 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 that, I guess, kind of connects to Freeze has his dead wife, who he, like, he never really mentions. We just learn about outside of that. It's completely disconnected from him and his motivations. Um, but it just feels so utterly devoid of any ideas or meaning or any of that. And this is also why, like, I don't love the comparisons to Adam West yes. Batman with this. The same way for Batman Forever, which is that was Adam West Batman, like, obviously and self-evidently an influence on this movie? Yeah, obviously. Like, the first 20 minutes of this are totally an Adam West homage with, like, the camera angles and the way, like, all the villains are, like, running around them and stuff like that. Like, it's just missing the pows and blams and biffs, you know? Um, but the Adam West Batman stories are about things. It's satire. Satire is inherently about things. There are ideas in the comedy in Adam West Batman. They are much better written, as I said last time with Batman Forever. Like, it's not just... Let's, and I, you know, I think the writing is like slightly wittier in this movie because at least the puns have like a theme around them with like ice and shit. In Batman Forever, it's really just we're going to have the characters yell a lot and that's going to be comedy. Um, and, you know, Tommy Lee Jones and, and Jim Carrey are going to dance around a lot and laugh and that's going to be the comedy. At least like Uma Thurman and Arnold Schwarzenegger get actual lines and jokes. They're not good lines and jokes, but they do get them. Um, 
But, like, Batman 66 isn't just, we're going to have Adam West be goofy and Burgess Meredith go, you know, we're going to have actual jokes and plots and satire going on. There's a real brain, and it's a big brain, it's a smart brain going on in the 1966 series that, I mean, these movies, the Schumacher movies, the Goldsman movies are dumb as a fucking rock, and that feels like an insult to rocks. Yeah, and I think this is a really important thing to talk about with this movie because I do think that there is, like, a faction of people on the internet because now the 90s was a long time ago, and so now the, the yes. internet is full of 90s kids who are now boring adults like us um, who have way too detailed opinions about the media we consumed as children. Um, and so that is now flooded the internet with, like, some revisionist like takes on these movies where like people are like ah oh, batman forever is not that bad at least it's better than batman and robin it's just like no it is that bad and it's not i mean they're both terrible um but then also i feel like there's a faction of people online that talk about batman and robin is like no people just it was just misunderstood because people only didn't like it because they didn't like campy batman and it was campy but if you watch it and you're like but you know that it's supposed to be like a jokey movie that means that you will then see that it's actually like maybe not a masterpiece but it's okay and those people are just wrong because those people like you i don't know what's wrong with you i don't know if you just had too many batman and robin happy meals when you were when the movie was out as a kid or whatever but like there is good schlock and then there's just bad movies right and batman i mean the 1960s batman isn't even really schlocky it's more just campy but there's like there no, can't be it's not schlocky at all it's a yeah. really well made movie i will stand yeah. up for it and it's funny and it's smartly written it's really well acted it knows exactly what it is and it knows how to accomplish it and it's a great comedy movie. Um, Batman and Robin feels like... Here's the thing. Here's here's the thing that makes it... That destroys it if you're trying to be like... It's a hidden camp classic. Or whatever fucking bullshit you're trying to do. Or even like it's a movie that's too so bad it's good. Because it's not in that territory for me either. The, here's the fundamental problem with Batman and Robin is... You cannot cut from a scene that has Poison Ivy making 50 fucking plant puns and mr freeze making 50 ice puns at each other and then you cut from that to a scene that's about fucking alfred dying a wasting death from an illness you can't do that you can't balance those tones you can't have old character who's a beloved character played by a great actor who has been this is the fourth one of these movies he's in and he's the best part of all of them and you love him and have that character slowly dying and then cut to wacky hijinks. It doesn't, it fundamentally doesn't work. And that's like the whole thing throughout the movie is the only stuff that's campy is just the villain stuff. The Batman stuff is for the most part played incredibly straight. The only time it's the Batman stuff's played vaguely campy is in like the opening suit up scene that should like zooms in on their butts and their fucking nipples that then plays in a very uncomfortably different way than they do it with Batgirl. Um, and that part's kind of campy. And then in the scenes where they're with Poison Ivy or Mr. Freeze, those can feel kind of campy with Batman and Robin. But as soon as they're outside of that realm and it's them in the manor and they're talking to each other um, and Alfred's there and all that, the camp just completely goes away and it turns into a very self-serious Batman movie. And that's the fundamental difference is that in Batman 1966, Adam West plays Batman as in a, like a heightened camp satire character. He doesn't play Batman straight. There's no scene in Batman 1966 with him ruminating over the nature of death and like grieving for his <laughs> lost parents because that's not what the character is. So when you have the scene in Batman and Robin that feels like them stealing stuff from the 60s series where Batman and Robin are on stage at this like charity thing because Bruce Wayne is selling his 
diamonds as a way to trap Mr. Freeze. That's a very 1960s Batman plot that's like pulled straight from that show. The problem is what's funny in that TV show is that this is a world where Batman and Robin standing up there on the stage, these people dressed as a bat and this boy dressed in like little shorts with like the pixie boots and a fucking domino mask. They're standing up on stage for a, a charity thing. And everyone's like, this is the most natural thing in the world. It's Batman and Robin. Of course, they're just standing up here for this charity thing. They look and feel so hilariously out of place in this movie, in that scenario, because it doesn't fit anything with their characters. How the fuck are Batman and Robin in this universe up there on, their, up there on that charity stage? It doesn't play as a joke. It plays like they don't know what they're doing because they didn't. I think the comparisons between Batman and Robin and the Adam West stuff, again, it's not that I don't see where it's coming from, but I genuinely think it comes from people who probably haven't actually seen yeah. the Adam West stuff. Because it's actually an insult to the Adam West stuff. Yeah. Batman 66. Let's just go with the movie that we talked about on this podcast, Sean, as our example. Yes. Is a well-made movie. Mm -hmm. It is a really well-made movie. It is a really well-directed movie. Look at the the scene that you and I both love. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Yes. Look at that scene. Break it down shot by shot. It is an objectively well-directed movie scene. It is good filmmaking. Yes. And it's not just good filmmaking. I actually think like that scene, that is great filmmaking. Like yeah. that is timing and framing and like the production design and Adam West's acting, which is mwah, pitch perfect. He's still the best Batman if you just gauge the quality of the performance. He just fucking is. Yeah, and, and, and like, with that scene, like one thing that's really important is like what you're saying is like the main joke in that scene is one that is delivered primarily through framing and editing because it's about yeah. showing things in the frame that are unexpected to you. Um, of him not being able to throw away the bomb in here and there and like revealing things in the frame in an interesting, funny way to ex like um, expand on and sort of exaggerate the joke more and more as it goes on. It is a joke that only works because it's a movie. You wouldn't be able to do the stage play version of it because the joke is made through cinematography and yes. editing. It is a filmic com comic sequence. Yes. Batman and Robin is, in my opinion... The worst made Hollywood movie I've ever seen. Yeah. It is the most ineptly made movie that like among movies made by professionals. Movies that like were made by a professional studio by professional nominally like filmmakers that went out to movie theaters. It is the worst movie in that sense I have ever seen. It is like there are lots of movies I hate. I hate Suicide Squad. I hate Transformers 2 and 1 and all of them. And like I hate a lot of these things. This is just manifestly a much, much worse made movie than any of those. Mm -hmm. Batman and Robin, Sean. You know the production budget of this movie? What is it, Jonathan? Production budget of this fucking movie was $160 million. How? Which was, like, one, more or less unprecedented at the time. Like, that is so high. That is the same year, Sean. This was 1997. Titanic came out the same year. Titanic infamously... Like, the most expensive movie ever made at the time. Titanic cost $200 million. Only $40 million more. They Only made a scale Titanic for yes. that movie. Titanic is like, if you want to see money on the screen, Titanic shows you the money on the screen, right? Yes, that is a movie that you watch it, and if you come out of that theater and someone tells you, you know, that's the most expensive movie that's been made so far, you'd be like, 
Well, yeah. Like, look at that movie. Like, that <laughs> looks like an ex- like they destroyed a boat for it. Like, yeah, it's a fucking yeah. expensive looking movie. It's a good movie. It's a great movie. Uh, Batman Forever cost a hundred million. It went up by sixty million dollars the production budget. Wow. This movie looks like it was made for nickels in couch cushions. It is so ineptly made and I went on my entire rant about this with Batman Forever but like this is the epitome of terrible direction where everything you see on screen every prop every set every color every costume everything looks fake and cheap and bad and it is not an aesthetic it is not a conscious camp choice it is none of that. It's just bad direction. The lighting is garish and ugly. The cinematography is flat and crowded and never conveys anything good through visuals. It is just always, constantly, the cheapest looking shit. It is unbelievably inept. It is the most ineptly directed movie I've ever seen, narrowly beating out the other most ineptly directed movie I've ever seen, which is Batman Forever. Mm-hmm. And this is even worse than that on the level of direction. Yeah, it is it is shocking. And yeah, cuz so, you know, cuz I am someone that this is not like, you know, my profession is not connected to movies. I love movies and love talking about them on the podcast. But like, so for me, if you talk about something like editing in a movie, it's hard for me when I'm watching a movie, particularly on a first time through, for me to have like a really strong like conscious opinion about the quality of editing in a movie because it's something that like unless you're experienced in it and you really think about it a lot, it's something you absorb so naturally because editing right. is the filmic grammar of how you're like making meaning through different shots being put together. And so for me to be able to, I made a tweet 15 minutes into the movie that I stopped and I like intentionally went into the movie and like, I'm not going to tweet while I'm watching this movie like I did with Batman Forever (laughs) because it added like an hour onto Batman Forever where I'd just get angry and I'd stop and I'd make a tweet and I'd get up and walk around and go like get a glass of water or something. And it just added time to the movie. Um, And so I didn't want to do that with Batman Robin. And then 15 minutes in, I noticed like a an edit that is just one of the worst edits maybe like i think the worst edit i've ever seen in a professional hollywood film because you don't see something that is just what is basically ends up being an unintentional jump cut so on my twitter feed if people want to go see it at sean the chapman um i made a tweet um where i posted this i just filmed the tv screen with my phone of like a 10 second clip from poison ivy's introduction scene where before she's poison ivy she's walking towards this door it's a like a minute long sequence of where the music is building up it's supposed to be ominous the whole scene is supposed to be communicating her she going towards the door to see what's behind it and i don't even know if we want to talk about what actually happens when she's on the other side of that door which is an inexplicable weird grouping of characters that then the main character in that scene dies and nothing from that scene ever comes up again other than bane but it's supposed to be there's something ominous behind this door she's slowly moving towards it when she gets kind of close to the door, Uma Thurman looks over her shoulder off to like basically the right of the frame. Um, and then it cuts to this reverse shot where you see her standing now by the door, leaning into it to push it open. And it's the worst edit I've ever seen in a Hollywood movie because it feels like there's just a shot missing. Because when a character looks off frame and then shortly after that, there is a cut with them still looking off frame. The thing you naturally expect of what movies do, because this is just what movies do, is you then have a shot showing you what they're looking at, because that's what editing is, right? When you have an indication that the major, the only character in this whole scene is looking somewhere, where she's looking is important. So therefore, the editing isn't going to show you where she's looking. But instead of that, she's looking off frame, 
And then it cuts to her having moved forward like five or six feet up into the door. And it just looks like she fucking teleports because the editing is broken. I rewatched this clip like 20 times because I was so fascinated by this. Because this is something I've seen in like YouTube videos that are amateur made. Or like I had some friends at Boulder that were like doing film, student films and stuff that I would do some help on like acting and shit like that. Um, and so, you know, I'm not inexperienced with seeing really bad edits like that because that's something that is amateurish and you see it in student films all the time, but you don't see it in a big Hollywood production because it's like unfathomable that the basic filmic grammar of the sequence breaks down in such a way that like you're completely kicked out of it. Watching it back like 20 times, I think the intent of the scene is actually supposed to be that she's supposed to be in the shot that's like where the camera's slightly kind of towards the door or now by the door looking at her in her face when she then looks off camera. I think she's actually supposed to be right next to the door and that the, what's supposed to be communicated is her leaning in right before it cuts is her leaning into the door to push it open even though that's not possible because for that to be where she is, the door would have to be in the left hand of the frame and the camera would have to be on the other side of the door that is currently closed. So it's like, how is this a sequence that is in a Hollywood movie that cost 160 million fucking dollars? How is that even possible? I agree with your assessment. I was just looking at the scene. That is clearly what they're trying to do. But when she's like pushing, she's like 10 feet away from the door because that's where the camera goes. Yes. And then it is just she's against the door. But you can fairly clearly tell. My guess is that it was storyboarded that way. They got to set. Someone said to Joel Schumacher, hey, this storyboard is physically impossible. And he said, do it anyway. And they're like, are you sure? That's going to be a massive continuity error. People might notice it and make fun of it on a podcast in 20 years. And he said, I don't care. I'm Joel Schumacher. Go. And uh, that's what we got. Yeah. And that's like the most egregious instance of that. Um, we'll talk about the, the the one at the climax with Robin that is also hilarious. Um, but, but there's lots of like little things like that in the movie. Like that to me was the one that jumped out at me the most. But there's like constant little moments like that where it feels like where where just like things that you take for granted that movies do because most movies that you that are a big Hollywood production just don't make simple mistakes like that this movie does them like weirdly frequently and it like goes to what you're saying Jonathan where like I would agree I haven't seen as many movies as you but of any like major proper like professional film production this is the worst direction I've ever seen yes absolutely um and it's it's you know it's not just like little moments like that. All of the set pieces. Yeah. So like your opening fight with Freeze in the big like ice rink, the big motorcycle chase with Barbara, the whole ending on the tower. Uh, the editing is incoherent. Yeah. It is incoherent. It is not legible. It is not. It is not clear the relationship between things. It is clearly just a mess of shots that some poor editor had to try to make something out of. And it was impossible because the coverage wasn't there. It is it is messy to a degree that is like kind of breathtaking. It is so bad and so incoherent and so illegible, uh, especially the one at the end. The, the one at the end is worse than the ones uh, earlier than that, although the ones earlier than that are very bad. But the one on the, like, the tower at the end is just gibberish. Mm -hmm. um, and this is sort of true of Batman Forever as well, but like not quite to that degree because Batman Forever, frankly, isn't as ambitious about it. But, like, again, if you want to compare it to the fight scenes in the Batman 66 stuff, are they silly and goofy and campy? Yes. 
they're also very clearly directed. Like, I can see the storyboard in my mind while I'm watching it because they're very built around cuts. They're built around where are we going to put in the pow? Where are we going to put in the biff? Where are we going to have all these beats and rhythm? There is rhythm to those fights. Look at the fight on the ship at the end of Batman 66. There's a comedic rhythm to it that does not exist here because this is too incompetent. It is not good. Like, like... The thing about camp, and I, I think people need to understand this, is camp is an intention. Camp is not an accident. Camp is is something that, and this is like definitionally, like the origins of camp. If you read like the academic scholarship on this, the whole idea of camp is that it like comes from people in the Hollywood studio system who were gay or lesbian or some other like othered identity who were working on these like very heteronormative works, usually musicals, and would try to leave like a mark on it. And one of those marks was sort of like queer the work that they were doing and, and camp it up as a way of sort of mocking the sort of heterosexual norms that are in the movie. And that's kind of where camp comes from. And like Batman 66 uses camp in a lot of those ways too, because it's about counterculture and like the sixties and all of that stuff. Um, I don't doubt that Joel Schumacher had some of those intents in his use of camp, like the stuff with the bat nipples and the shots of the crotch and all that, that is very intentional camp. But a lot of the other stuff that people point to as camp in Batman and Robin is just inept filmmaking. Yeah. It's not camp. Those are separate things and should be understood as separate things. Like Rocky Horror Picture Show is not like a terribly made movie that is, that is still watched because the people making it were fucking idiots. It's a camp classic yes. for a reason. It's intentional camp. The Room is a bad movie people watch because it is bad and they are fascinated by the badness of it. It is not camp because Tommy Wiseau did not intend for it to be camp. Yes, exactly. So there you go. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Batman and Robin Defenders Online... I don't think any of them listen to this podcast, but if you do, fuck off. <laughs> it's like uh, we have we have one listener who might be listening, and and he's very nice uh, on Twitter, and and said he liked it, and and so I hope we are not insulting that one listener. Um, but, but yeah, it's uh, it's not personal. It's just no. this movie's really bad. Yeah, I just it's hard for me to fathom it, and, and it is because I want to like make it clear. Like there, I went into this movie in the back of my head, being like, you know, I know that this opinion is out there. So it's like I went in it in it like consciously being like. If it's grabbing me in that, like, of, like, I wanted to make sure I was watching it and not in a way that would be like, oh, because it's Goofy Batman or whatever, I just dismiss it. Because that's what people say about the criticism of this movie. Um, but I think the fact that, you know, Batman 1966, we both, is, like, either the best or, like, it's, you know, it's that movie, Batman Returns, and Master of the Phantasm. Those are the three best Batman movies that at least we've talked about. Um, and I would say Master of the Phantasm, then 66, and the Batman Returns probably in that order so it's like campy funny goofy batman is not a disqualifier for us on this podcast by a long shot no so, um that is not why we're saying the movie is bad we're saying the movie is bad because it's bad yeah it's bad um and just again like i think one of the best examples ever this gets gift every so often on twitter is when all of the city is freezing over at the end and then you go through the city there's a shot where a guy is getting out of a cab, or maybe it's a cop or something, but he has ice on his car, and he opens the door, and the ice is clearly just rubber, yeah. and it just flops in the wind as he opens the door, I, and it just looks all looks like a toy. The ice just looks like a toy. Everything, like like the Batmobile at the beginning of the movie, looks like a toy, and not in a fun way, like where like in some Godzilla movies, like the tanks look like a toy, and you're like, that's fun. 
no, it just looks like a toy for a commercial because that's what this movie was. Like, everyone involved with it has talked about that, that this movie was basically a marketing committee by design movie, that the only goal at this point... Like, the Batman franchise devolved so quickly. Like, Tim Burton got in on Batman Returns and made something that you could call art, and Warner Brothers slapped his hand and went, No! No, you do not make art with Batman! You do not! We make toy commercials! Fuck you. And so they hired Joel Schumacher and had to make a toy commercial with Batman Forever. And then they had to make another toy commercial with Batman and Robin. So bad that on the commentary for this movie, Joel Schumacher apologizes for it. Um, but like, that's what this was. And that's why it looks the way it does. And it's just like, Warner Brothers is just this company that goes through these periods of just unbelievable mismanagement. And this is one of them where just like, they could not turn out anything decent to save their fucking lives at this point. At least in the commercial division. It will always boggle the mind that, like, this is the same studio that was, like, funding Stanley Kubrick at the same time. But whatever. Probably different hands. Um, yeah. It's, uh, fuck, fuck this movie and, and fuck everyone involved with it. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, on the point of, like, the sort of, the special effects with which I include both the CG, of which there's more than there was in Batman Forever, and it's just as bad. I don't want to say it's worse. I mean, I'd have to actually compare the shots back to back, and I don't want to. But, like, yeah. every usage of, like, CG in this movie looks fucking terrible. Um, you know, it's 1997. Jurassic Park was out at this point, right? When did Jurassic Park Jurassic come out? Jurassic Park is 93, 93 Sean. 93, God. Like, so, yeah. yeah. So, yes. So, no excuse. Like, it's, it's yeah, it's terrible. Um, but also just any of the, movie, the, the effects of the movie meant to create the sense of that Poison Ivy and uh, Mr. Freeze have superpowers, which would be special effects. Um, like everything connected to the freeze gun and the plants, like looks so terrible. My favorite one is in the that first like I can't believe it's 15 minutes long action sequence with Mister Freeze at the beginning of the movie that is like about 10 minutes longer than it needs to be. Um, Robin gets frozen, and then when Batman lifts up this frozen Robin, it is. You know, it's basically like in Star Trek, the original series, when you have Kirk, like, lift up a styrofoam rock to hit the Gorn with it. But at least William Shatner had the wherewithal of an actor to try to pretend that the styrofoam rock was heavy. Right. Like, George Clooney, I'm assuming it's him in the Batman outfit, um, lifting up this, like, fake frozen Robin, doesn't even try to make it look like it's heavy. It's like, that's a that's an adult human being that has been frozen solid. That would be heavy as shit. That's like 160 to 180 pounds. It has got to be. Like, you can't just lift that up without even, like, bending down and using your knees. He just sort of, like, pops it up and then throws it into this pond. And it's like... Again, that's, like, one of the differences between something like this and something like Star Trek that is actually low budget. It doesn't just look low budget because somehow this, again, costs $160 million. Um, but like, it actually was low budget and it, you know, the people making that series knew that it was low budget. They knew that they wouldn't be able to like, you know, afford like expensive sets and stuff like that. So you do the best you can and you have like people who really care about the material doing it. So in that Gorn episode of Star Trek, the original series, which is a fucking classic, everyone can tell that the rocks weigh like two pounds because they're just made of styrofoam, but you get sucked into it because the story is good and the acting tries to sell it. And it's like, God damn it. Who cares that the rocks are styrofoam? Here, like, this is a $160 million movie, and you have a giant frozen Robin prop. How do you not even care enough to try to sell the sense that it's like you're lifting an adult human being? Yes. So, and here's the thing about Star Trek, Sean. You say William Shatner had the wherewithal of an actor. He also had a director. Yeah. 
who told him to do that. Like, so that episode of Star Trek, along with a lot of the best episodes of Star Trek, including The Devil in the Dark, City on the Edge of Forever, Amok Time, Trouble with Tribbles, Journey to Babel, those were all directed by a guy named Joseph Pevney, who spent his entire life directing movies and TV. And he was a director good enough to probably tell William Shatner, hey, when you lift the styrofoam rock, pretend it's a rock. And yeah. they probably rehearsed it once or twice, and he said, good, this is good. The direction of actors in this movie is abysmal because I don't just believe that George Clooney is an idiot and didn't think to like lift it. George Clooney was directed in some way to do that scene badly. Yeah. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And there is so much bad actor's direction in this movie. My favorite example of it, and the person who suffers worse from this is Alicia Silverstone. Yeah. I think a lot of people have only seen Alicia Silverstone in this movie and think she's a terrible actress, and that is not true. If you have not seen it, please watch the 1995 movie Clueless by Amy Heckerling. Clueless is one of the great movies of the 90s. It's the best fucking Jane Austen adaptation. It's Emma, but in high school. Right, right. It's so good. And and Alicia Silverstone is hilarious in that. And she's so good. And she is so perfectly directed because Amy Heckerling is a phenomenal director. She's the person who did Fast Times at Richmond High. She knows what she's doing. She can direct an actor. Alicia Silverstone in this movie is floundering because she just has no direction. Like, listen to any line reading she has, and it's just aimless. There is no, like... And I think usually people put this on the actor, like, oh, the actor's reading without emotion. And my reaction is always, well, who do you think is signing off on uh -huh. it, right? Like, the actor doesn't call cut. The actor doesn't say action. The actor doesn't choose the shots. The actor is doing the work, and the director is ultimately responsible for it. It's like when people... Blame Sofia Coppola for Godfather 3. It's not her fault. Her dad directed it and he could have told her, hey, read that line differently. And if it wasn't working, he could have hired someone else. It's not her fault. Yeah. And it's the same with Alicia Silverstone here. And the best moment of that is when she comes in to... I mean, the whole relationship between her and Alfred is just weird <laughs> and not, like, done right. And it's awkward. And, like, the fact that Alfred is British and has an extremely American niece, which they never explain. Okay. But she comes into his room one night. And it's like, I'm here to tuck you in, Uncle Alfred. And already I'm like, that's kind of weird. That's... I don't know. That's... Okay, yeah. uh, but she's like, I'm here to tuck you in, Uncle Alfred. Okay, sweet enough. And then she comes up, and he's on the computer, and she starts petting his head like he's a dog. And, like, going up to, like, your grandpa or your uncle or someone like that and, like, giving them a pat on the head or, a, or a putting your hand on their shoulder is totally normal. But I'm telling you, please watch the scene and look at what her hand is doing on his head. And then look at Alicia Silverstone's eyes, and you will see a deep level of discomfort that she is rubbing the head... Of you know, classically trained iconic British actor Michael Goh, and is petting his head like a fucking dog, and it is so clearly something she was directed to do, not something you would naturalistically do with a loved one. It is bizarre, and it is like the key piece of example for my assertion that this is just a badly directed movie. Yes, no, one hundred percent. Let's talk about Batgirl just in general in this movie because okay. <laughs> Like, so, th this can't be true, because, I mean, I, I read enough about the production to see that this isn't the case, because it would have to have been known if this was the case. But it legitimately feels like Batgirl was added into the movie after the fact with reshoots. Because she, I mean, one, she has only, outside of the climax, which is a big action sequence, she only has one scene in the entire movie 
with Batman slash George Clooney slash Bruce Wayne, which is the beginning where she's introduced and he's like, why don't you stay here? Everyone's like, that's weird. Where you're Batman probably would be a bad idea. And he's like, no, she should stay here. Um, and that's the only time that she interacts with Batman in the Batman movie. And she's Batgirl. Um, and so the whole time you have the movie happening, which is Batman and Robin are vaguely going after Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy becomes a villain and she's doing her villain stuff and teaming up with Mr. Freeze. And just periodically then you'll just cut to a scene in the manor with Batgirl um, or Barbara Wilson because she's not Barbara Gordon. I looked up on Wikipedia what her last name was because I was like, well, she can't be Gordon because she's not related to Gordon. Um, Barbara Wilson, the niece of Alfred, who is 50 years older than she is going by the actor ages, which is like, that's not an uncle niece kind of age difference, but okay, whatever. Also, she is supposed to be British because she's going to school in Britain, but whatever. Um, uh, and so she's, you cut to these random scenes with her inexplicable character she's in the manor and she's like stealing a motorcycle and her whole backstory is that she's studying computers which is going to be important they're not going to actually call this out but it does set up her role in the finale although it doesn't explain how robin does what he does but she was studying computers at uh university and then was kicked out because she at also oxbridge yeah it's not oxford it's oxbridge yes. which is fucking funny oxbridge and yeah but she's got kicked out because she likes to do motorcycle stuff um and so then she has the motorcycle race in the middle. Robin is like kind of interested in her, but you don't get a sense of like, is it supposed to be a romantic interest? Is it like, what is the dynamic between the characters supposed to be? Um, and then at the end of the movie, she, an, an AI of Alfred, and this is one of the reasons why it feels like it was a reshoot because they couldn't get Michael Go actually there to be on set for like a reshoot or something. So it's like, well, just <laughs> stand over in this against this wall, wear this suit, and we'll film you. And just you're an AI of Alfred that you, that Alfred programmed that is there to tell Batgirl that like, I thought you would maybe figure this out. So I prepared like a skin tight suit for my like 18 year old niece in advance. Um, but <laughs> Not enough that I would have told it to you while I was still, like, conscious, but waited for you to discover it on your own. But I had spent the time to make the AI of it's such an absurd, <laughs> overly complicated thing to put into your fucking script, that whole sequence. And then she's Batgirl. And then she is the character that defeats Poison Ivy in the Poison Ivy scene. She has had zero moments interacting with Poison Ivy. As far as we know, she doesn't even know that Poison Ivy exists as a character. And she shows up um, and she beats Poison Ivy and it's this very groan-inducing 90s version of like feminism by having a strong woman character. Um, that She's like, we do, you're a bad woman, Poison Ivy, because you're like sexual and seductive. I'm supposed to just be sexually provocative, but I'm ultimately like chaste and virginal because that's what makes me the good one. And also I like some boy things like motorcycles, but I still wear high heels on my costume because I'm a lady. Um, and then she wins. And it's like, how? How is this a script that got written? How did anybody sit here and think, this is how we're going to put Batgirl in our movie, is to make her weirdly siloed off, interact with no other characters other than Alfred and Robin, and then have her come into the last action scene and defeat the villain, whose entire thing in the, for the previous section of the movie was her seducing Robin to set her and Bat him and Batman against each other, and then Batman and Robin have nothing to do with actually beating her. It's fucking bizarre. Yeah, I mean, the, the answer, Sean, to your question is uh, just Akiva Goldsman. Um 
is is how did this happen? Uh, it's because he's one of the worst writers in the history of Hollywood, uh, and almost certainly the least talented person to ever win an Oscar. That is my. I need to like actually go through and see if I can substantiate that. But he did win the Academy Award for Best Screenplay for A Beautiful Mind, and I do think that is one of the worst Oscar wins in history. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, the Batgirl stuff is baffling. Like it is. You know, they tried to do the Bat Family, I guess, but at this point I would rather they just hadn't than do it at all. But, like, the entire idea of doing Batgirl and having her not be related to Gordon, having her be related to Alfred in a really weird way that we don't really understand, um, not interact with Batman at all, just we're going to do a part of the Bat Family where Batman doesn't know this member of the Bat Family, that's kind of weird. Her relationship is entirely with Alfred and Robin, but there's no payoff to the Robin side of it because Robin is horny for Poison Ivy the entire movie. Um, so it's only, there's vague payoff with Alfred because he lives and she loves him and that's nice, I guess. Um, you know, we all like Alfred, but like, what the fuck? Like, it is such a weird decision. The all, and then at the end, like, as you say, the like fake, and honestly, we say 90s, this is still how a lot of it works, yeah. but like the fake pop feminism, like, where she's like doing like, like girl power one liners, and it's just so awful and insulting and just gross and all of it, and it is bad. It's real bad. Yeah, it, it is like, that is the thing that I think I was like most surprised by watching the movie again because i didn't i didn't remember anything about what her role in the movie was i just remember that batgirl was in the movie and so watching it i was just like how how like how was this the how were these choices made it just feels so bizarre that you wouldn't do anything to try to integrate the character into the plot at all um it's one of the things that makes it feel like it is the shapeless formless plot movie because it has a major character that it does commit significant screen time to. If it wasn't for her, it would be the like mercifully ninety minute long movie that it needs to be. <laughs> yes. Um. But like adding in this whole other character that you have like an entire middle movie action scene dedicated to, and all this shit for her to be just utterly irrelevant to all the main stuff that's happening for most of the movie. I just like I can't think of a movie that does something that is this wasteful. It, as a storytelling choice. It's so, so bizarre. You know what's also bizarre? That this is a movie called Batman and Robin, where Batman and Robin hate each other. Yeah. They don't like each other. They're competitive. They don't trust each other. They not just hate, but like dislike. And I know that sounds redundant, but I mean like they don't enjoy each other's company. They don't want to be around each other. They have no chemistry. That is not, like, other than maybe a fucking weird Frank Miller comic, that has never been the dynamic of Batman and Robin. I feel like a pretty fundamental Batman and Robin thing is that they enjoy spending time together. Um, and this movie doesn't do that. And also they're both horrifically miscast. It's, it's, that's where the movie really just utterly has nothing going for it because... It's called Batman and Robin, and both Batman and Robin, these are the worst versions of either of those characters I have ever seen. Yeah, because it's this thing of where they, like, very vaguely and limply try to sort of redo the character dynamic from the previous movie, again, by having this whole thing of where they're competitive with each other, and, like, Batman doesn't really trust Robin enough, and it's supposed to be about how, at the end, Batman learns to trust Robin enough to, like, believe in him, but 
but Robin is bad and incompetent for the entire movie, right? He basically, like, if this movie had balls, he would be dead at the 15-minute mark because he just gets frozen by fucking Mr. Freeze, who then just decides, because it's a kid's movie, he's like, well, anyways, I'm just going to leave now, even though I did freeze one of you and I can clearly overpower the other one. I'm just going to leave and, like, kind of, like, flip the middle fingers, basically. I do really like the moment at the end of that sequence where he freezes the the wall over that he leaves by and then he looks back in and it's, like, a window and he, like, winks at them. And it's that's a very good Schwarzenegger <laughs> touch. Like, I, I like to believe that that wasn't even in the script. That's just Arnold Schwarzenegger doing that because it was a good moment. Um, but, like, it sets up this thing of where... Robin has this inferiority complex that isn't deserved because he sucks. Like, because we've seen him, <laughs> like, fuck up phenomenally, like, multiple times through the course of that action sequence. And so it's like he, like, like it's not a, a dynamic that I haven't seen before, right? It's very much the kind of thing that, like, would normally, in other Batman stories, this would be, like, lead to Robin breaking off in his own and becoming Nightwing because he needs to leave, like you know, Batman in order to, like, really become someone on his own and, like, grow into his own man, right? That's, like, kind of an arc that the Dick Grayson character typically has. That's not what they're doing here. Like, it's not at all about Robin feeling stifled by Batman and he can't be who he needs to be because of his relationship with Batman and therefore he needs to leave the nest and grow up on his own. That's not the story they're doing. The story is about how Batman is wrong for not trusting Robin because that's the thing that Alfred repeatedly, like, admonishes him about and him being like oh alfred am i like overbearing am i like have to always have it my way or the highway and he's like yes you do um and so it's like that's the thing that is set up in the beginning that he needs to overcome is his inability to trust robin even though we see him fuck up multiple times and then when poison ivy is introduced into the movie the whole dynamic she does which is bad and feels lazy is her like seductress powers um then turn batman and robin against each other but Batman seems to kind of get over it after that first scene. And Robin is under her spell for almost the entire movie until the the last action scene where he overcomes her spell. And then he's limply pushed into a pool and then participates no longer in the fight against Poison Ivy. Um, <laughs> again, a well-deserved inferiority complex because he was shoved into a pool by a woman who was lying down on a couch, a position that does not allow someone a lot of power to push someone. So he more kind of got shoved a little bit and then tripped backwards and rolled about 10 feet into a pool of water from which he could not surface <laughs> for no identifiable reason other than that is what the plot needed. So Robin sucks, phenomenally sucks in this movie, but the movie is not about how Robin needs to get better or he needs to improve or he needs to realize that the things that he's putting on Batman are in his own head because he's just angry at himself. All those are things, again, I've, other Robin stories have done in comic books and cartoons and, and video games and shit like that. That is not a new Robin story. And that feels like what they wanted this story to be. But ultimately, it's about Batman has to come around to, like, trusting Robin and opening up to Robin. And then that's what allows Robin to overcome the Poison Ivy thing is that brute Batman said, like, you know what? I'm going to say the line that you said to me at the end of the last movie. And that's going to mean that we're friends again as brothers. And then they, and then that's the climax of their character arc. It is so bad. Every step of it is so misguided, like miscast in terms of the actors, poorly written in terms of the dialogue, poorly directed um, every single step along the way. It is the wrong choice coupled, like placed on top of the wrong choice on top of the wrong choice and all of it executed poorly. If you're set up at the beginning of the movie in your first like action sequences, Robin is bad at everything and wrong. 
There's three ways you can go with that. There's three ways. One is the uh, he decides to get better, right? Yeah. He uh, he 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 improves himself over the course of the movie. You know all all that. Uh, the and I've seen like the animated series does that several yes. times with Robin. Um, there's the one where um, he goes out on his own as Nightwing and like figures it out himself, right? Which is you intimated at the, the character Nightwing comes from that. Yes. Uh, or he dies, and because he's so bad at everything, he dies. And then Batman feels bad because he didn't prepare this kid enough. And then maybe that's an opening for Barbara to come in, and like the conflict would be, he's got like this new person in the house and and alfred is like pushing batman to like trust again and batman doesn't want to but like barbara is more capable than robin and so you could tell a really good story that way uh but somehow batman and robin opts for none of the above yes and goes with the wrong one run one wrong option it's like an a b c d e test it's like a b c d and then e is the right answer which is a b or c and they picked d yeah uh, and d is uh he just keeps being wrong and bad at everything and keeps jeopardizing the mission and the safety of the entire city and world uh and then batman just has to tell him he's right anyway but then in the final fight robin doesn't actually help with anything yes. that is the most important thing <laughs> robin never does anything to help at any point in this movie because in the final fight batman figures out the satellite batman defeats mr freeze completely on his own bat girl and robin are off like they have to like melt the ice on the thing on the satellite but batgirl could have done that herself and i'm pretty sure batman could have sent like his fucking bat missile over there or whatever and done it right and like and so robin does nothing and then when it comes to the computer thing robin has nothing to contribute because barbara does it so robin could have just fucking died like climbing up the tower and nothing would have changed Nothing. Not a goddamn thing. There's no actual payoff to Batman trusting Robin because Robin doesn't contribute at any point in the movie. Yeah, and it's 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 hilarious. Like it's so poorly constructed, and it leads to what is like I think simultaneously the worst and funniest scene in the movie, which is at that middle <laughs> point where I think they're chasing after Mister Freeze, and Mister Freeze like he has two goons in cars. They like go off this jump, and the two goons die, and Mister Freeze makes it. And Batman and Robin are chasing him, um, and Robin's on his like oh, yeah. Robin cycle. <laughs> and then Batman basically like takes out this like thing and presses a button that like deactivates the Robin's motorcycle. And Batman then chases after uh, Mister Freeze, and then Robin is stalled, like gets off the bike, walks to the end of the jump, and then like looks up at Batman and just goes and yells at him in anger, which is like again in a movie that's a like for people who are like oh no you just people don't like it because it's silly funny batman and people don't like silly funny batman silly funny batman doesn't have a scene in it where it's like raining and it's night outside and robin is standing on the edge and just yelling at batman in pure primal fury and rage at him not being taken seriously as a person that's not campy funny silly action that is supposed to be like a dark character moment for him it is just, it's so hilarious because it feels so appropriate and the right choice that Batman made because you know that Robin, like, if Robin had went off that jump, he would have been, like, one of those two goons and, like, collided into the building and fucking died a fiery <laughs> death. So good job, Batman. You saved this teenager's life. You saved this 24-year-old man who, like, moonlights at Blockbuster's life. Um, and you went off to go try to save the day. But instead, it's supposed to be that, like, Batman is wrong in having done that because it's pushing Robin to be mad at Batman because Batman doesn't trust Robin. But Robin has done nothing to make it feel like he's a character that should be trusted with anything. 
Chris O'Donnell is terrible in this. Yeah. It's, we went pretty easy yeah. on him, I feel like, with Batman Forever, other than making fun of the fact that he looks like he's 30, <laughs> and he's supposed to be playing 16? I don't know. I still don't know. Um, and I, I, I feel okay being mean here, because the difference between Chris O'Donnell and some of these other actors is Alicia Silverstone has Clueless. George Clooney has his entire career other than this movie. Yeah. So I know they're capable actors. I have never seen the Chris O'Donnell equivalent of Clueless. I don't think it exists. I think he's in these movies because he's vaguely attractive, not in like an interesting way, just like a, you know, he could do underwear modeling, I guess, mm -hmm. for a Sears catalog. He'd be probably, probably be pretty good at that. Um, he's terrible. The first line in this movie, the first line is the, the Batmobile comes up and he goes, I want a car. Chicks dig the car. And the way he says that, sounds like a rejected audition like it sounds like something like you say that and then someone says okay next it's such a bad line reading and is this all also on joel schumacher for not like trying yes but also chris o'donnell is really bad in all of this this robin fucking sucks and i really do think that like part of why there's such disdain against Robin in, like, the modern, like, Batman... Not Batman fandom, because I think actual Batman fans like Robin, but, like, the larger public consciousness mm -hmm. is because of Chris O'Donnell's Robin. Like, it just killed Robin for a generation, you know? Yeah, and because part of it comes from this, like, need to try to make Robin cool. So they give him... Yes. So, like, his costume in this movie is basically the Nightwing costume with a cape. But then they made the thing red, which I resent them for because then in like the new Fifty Two era, Nightwing had a red crest instead of the blue one because the like the iconic blue is Nightwing. Yeah, the iconic cool. Nightwing costume is one of the all time great superhero costumes. It looks so good, and then they made it made it red and it made him look like Robin in this movie. It fucking sucked. Um, but they age him up, right? They make him edgier. He's got this like vaguely Jason Todd in terms of the Robins, the second Robin, Jason Todd, the one who got killed and then turned and now he's like basically the Punisher in modern comic books when he comes back. Um, they kind of characterize him a little bit like that with the whole motorcycle thing. And he's got a bad boy attitude to him, which by the way, that first line in the movie is bad also because it doesn't make sense because Robin's whole thing in this movie is that he's a motorcycle nut. And that was his thing yeah. in the last movie also. So it's like, why does he give a shit about the cars? Like, his whole thing is that he loves motorcycles. Um, but so they try to make him cool in order to, like, in this, like, very conscious, let's make him cool kind of way. Not in a let's actually make him a cool character. Uh, in a way to, like, kind of consciously distance him from the classical image of Robin, which is, which is what the 1966 Batman does. Um, which is, you know, I mean, he's older in that than the comic books because you're not going to get a 12-year-old boy to do it because that would be bad um, on movies. That's not going to play the same way as it can in the comic book. But, you know, very, very youthful. He's got the little, like, green-scaled thong thing, which I think you can give him pants. That's fine. He doesn't have to have the classic thong. But he has, like, the fucking boots and all that, right? And, and yes, I don't think you can just do that on film. I think it would look bad. You need to update it in some ways which they do in Batman Forever Forever with his, like, um, gymnast outfit, but then he doesn't wear that because it would have been better if he just kept that for the most of the movie. Um, but so them trying to distance it from that character, yeah, I think is in many ways like the death knell conceptually for the whole approach they took for the movie, this and Batman Forever, um, that I you think you're right, is one of the things that has, like, poisoned conceptually Robin in the public consciousness, which feels which it sucks because this isn't even really an identifiably accurate version of any meaningful depiction of Robin from any of the source material. So, 
yeah. if you actually went through and like did the follow through and had him die at some point, you could claim this is Jason Todd, but even then, like he doesn't have the like earnestness of a of a good Jason Todd yeah. version, you know, um, who we will get to when we talk about um, the Under the Red Hood yes. story, which is great. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's, it's so bad. It's so bad. It's so bad. Um, but also, George Clooney. Yeah. Easy pick for the worst live action Batman, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something where it's like, I feel bad for I feel bad for George Clooney in this movie in the way I feel bad for Tommy Lee Jones in Batman Forever. It's like, I've yes, seen you in a, a lot comparison. of movies. I know you are a great actor. I mean, this is like in the midst of his like ER career um, where people might not know now, but like that's kind of where he got his first big hit was on ER and I watched that quite a bit back in the day and really liked He's him. He's great on that. Um, and that yeah. was like very surreal because I haven't seen any George Clooney from this era with like where he just straight up has black hair. It's not like the salt and pepper thing that he typically has. I'm like, man, George Clooney looks young as shit. Right, this is what he looked like on ER. I mean, he's a great actor. He has been in great stuff since. He was in great stuff at the time. So it's like, I don't feel like it's his fault. I think he could be a good Batman. But the Batman in this movie is given nothing. There's no characterization. There's not even an attempt at a characterization. At least in Batman Forever with Val Kilmer, you know, he's at least got the love interest character to play off of. Um, here, he's got nothing, you know. He has no love interest character. He has no real relationship with Robin for all the reasons we just talked about. The only other character he kind of has a relationship with is Alfred, and it's like not enough because, you know, all these movies have that. Um, it's, it's like he needs something to be able to define the performance, the take on the character, what they're going for with it. And it's just nothing. There is no take or perspective or interpretation of Batman happening with Batman in this movie. There's just a guy in a Batman suit that runs around and leads, reads some lines. And a lot of, a lot of George Clooney's line reads are really, really bad in this movie. Particularly the, like the whole speech he has at the end, the delivery is just awful. Um, and it's. So I feel bad. I feel bad for him. Like, I feel like he could do a good job with a Batman or Bruce Wayne and like that stuff. But man, this movie just has no idea what it wants Batman to do or be. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally to me, like he's miscast because I, George Clooney is an actor you should never put under a mask. Like he's Mm -hmm. just not that actor. It would be like doing Brad Pitt as Batman. It's like, and I'm not talking about him being handsome here. He is, but I mean like, like just like that's his acting is like, so he is such a like face talking actor he is not like this big physical like action guy you know yeah um and it's just and he is the only batman who does zero differentiation between the cowl and out of it he's just the same like he just plays it utterly at one level no matter where you are in it and it is weird like i'm looking at his career like list right now and if you don't know like so he was on er for the first i think six seasons he was there 94 to 99 um, yeah, he, he left during the sixth season. Um, and those are like early ER is one of the best American shows ever. Yeah. And he's very good on it. And during his run on ER, I mean, he was like the breakout star. He's this handsome guy on this great show. And so he's starting to get all this Hollywood stuff. And most of what he does actually was like successful and interesting, like at the same. So he did Batman and Robin while working on ER. And he did this and he did From Dusk Till Dawn. Uh, the right. Peacemaker, Out of Sight, all these, and uh, like a lot of modest hits, and then Batman and Robin, which would normally kill a career. Like, this would have normally killed someone's career. Luckily, like, George Clooney had like enough irons in the fire that he was okay, and he leaves ER in 1999 and does 
Three Kings with David O. Russell, The Perfect Storm, Oh Brother Where Are You, the Coen Brothers movie, and then Ocean's Eleven all in 2000 and 2001. Jesus. And like that is what cements him as like a star, right? Yeah, that's got to um, be like an all-time great two years for an actor. Like that's a yes. lot of like really great iconic performances. Yeah, so he he does this like, and that's what really like, by the time, I mean it is really weird when you go back to it. I think most people don't remember he was Batman. Like it left no mark on his career because he rebounded like so quickly and he had so many other irons in the fire. Whereas like Val Kilmer, you can very easily argue that that helped kill Val Kilmer's like Mm -hmm. long term career because that was a turning point for him. Uh, Michael Keaton really was like typecast for a long time and had trouble breaking out of the Batman bubble. Um, but George Clooney just, he was fine. <laughs> you know, the people forgot. But he is very bad in this and uh, he hates it. Every so often he does an interview where he just trashes the movie anew. Um, it's very fun to hear. He did it recently. Let me look this up because um, he recently, I feel like, did uh, an interview about this and I want to see if I can find it because uh, it's very funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. January twenty first, twenty twenty one. After Batman and Robin bombed, George Clooney didn't necessarily care how his next three movies did, as long as they had great scripts. That's the, the headline for this, which I love. Um, yeah. Um, he said, "Yeah." After Batman and Robin came out, and it was a big bomb. You learn from your failures. You don't learn from your successes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I have to really focus on the script. It's not just about my part. It's about the whole movie. I love that. I kind of love that. That's the lesson he took because that's actually a really good lesson. Yes, yes, that's yes. That's a good like movie star kind of thing. Like, okay, yeah, I need to make sure that it's not just I'm playing the main character or whatever, um, and just pay attention to that. Like, you need to make sure the movie's not going to be shit. And this is conscious. Like, George Clooney says basically that Batman and Robin is part of the reason why he kind of became a star. Because he says, the next three films I did were Out of Sight, Brother Where Art Thou, and Three Kings, like I just mentioned. And he says, they were all great screenplays. None of them did big financially, but they were really critically well-received. And he's absolutely right. And he says, it became clear to me that you can make a bad film out of a good script, but you can't make a good film out of a bad script. And so that's why he likes to focus on scripts. That's actually a great lesson to have taken away and, like, is very clearly manifested in his career from that point on with, like, who he works with. You know, if if the price we had to pay for George Clooney being in a bunch of really good movies and being a very good actor in them is that we had to have this shit Batman movie, that's worth it. You know, I'll take him in being an Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, I was about to say, if Oh Brother, Where Art Thou happened with George Clooney because he was inspired by Batman and Robin, then Batman and Robin was 100% worth it. Yeah. Because Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? is just that good. And he's just that good in it. If you've never seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? God, that's a great fucking movie. Um, Yeah, so... (laughs) Does not work. I also think, like, George Clooney just looks particularly goofy underneath that cowl. Like, the eye... The eye pieces are too big in this Batman movie. Mm -hmm. Like, he has so much eyeshadow on to fill in that eye piece. Like, it felt like they wanted you to be able to tell it was George Clooney under the cowl more than you could for other actors. And so it's, like, more shaped to his face. It's not a good Batman costume. No, yeah, it's bad. It also has something that is so inexplicable... Um, that I, like, went back to, I, like, rewound the fucking movie to see, like, did I miss a scene where they go, they defeat Poison Ivy, right? And then after they defeat Poison Ivy, it cuts to them driving in, like, snowy fucking Gotham to go fight um, Mr. Freeze. And all of a sudden, they are in their silver costumes, which I remembered the silver costumes because it was, like, the toys and shit at the time. Um, yeah. And and I like I like the silver costumes just fine. I think it's, like, a decent design on their own. But there's no moment where they change into those costumes. They're just in them. And it's 
utterly unexplained. And I was like, how is that even possible? How did you not take this as an excuse to do a new suit-up moment or, like, a scene where Batman's like, well, I made a new suits, and luckily I made a girl one-two for no reason that, like, are anti-Mr. Freeze suits or something, which feels like what they're supposed to be. But that's not in the movie. They're just in them, and there's no explanation. There's not even any, like, attention paid to, like, point it out. I only noticed it, like, a couple of minutes into that sequence because Robin's thing was silver instead of red. And that's, like, a very notable difference in the costumes. Um, I was kind of blown away because that's one of the few things I remember about this movie is they have the silver costumes. And I couldn't believe that that's not explained. They're just in them with nothing, no connected material at all. So I didn't consciously notice that during the movie, but when I after the movie, I was at my computer, I was making the key art for this episode of the podcast, and I was looking through photos, and I found the production photo of the three of them in the silver costumes, and I was like, wait, those were in the... That wasn't the whole movie. When did... And I had the same journey, Sean, where I was like, when did those... And I didn't care enough to like go put the Blu-ray back in and check, but like... What the fuck? When did they get those costumes? Is there like a deleted scene where like Mr. Freeze hits them with an ice beam and then their suits are different? Like, I don't know. It's like a p- fucking Power Rangers thing? I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, that must be the most notable mark on the movie that it is like the, the toy commercial aspect of it. Because, because there can't be a deleted scene that explains those costumes. Because again, Batman doesn't know that Batgirl is a thing. There's no way for right. Batgirl specifically to have a new costume. <laughs> Batman and Robin, absolutely. It would make perfect sense for Batman to have made something. It would be great to have seen Batman do something to prepare for the villains that he fights in the first act, which he doesn't do in this movie, right? The closest you get is that Robin has the plastic <laughs> lips. It is bizarre to me that one of the, like, in the first act, Batman is seduced by Poison Ivy, and he never really addresses it. He never comes up with a countermeasure. He doesn't do anything about it other than you have the plastic lips on Robin, which also are utterly pointless for the actual conclusion of that fight because Batgirl comes in and saves the day. And that's something, when I talk about there's no take or interest on Batman, that's part of what I mean. There's no, yeah. you don't even have the simple care to like have Batman do the Batman thing and come up with how do you beat the villains, which would include making a costume. At the very least, as bad as they are, he does fucking try to solve the riddles that the Riddler leaves for him in Batman Forever, right? <laughs> the, the equivalent of what he is in this movie would be if he did if he saw the riddles and was like, eh, that's weird, I'm not going to bother with that, and then just he never does it for the whole movie. Um, it's, it's so peculiar. But it's, so it's obvious that the silver suits exist entirely just because you can then make two toys. Here's the normal suit toy. Here's the silver suit toy. Why do they have the silver suits? When did they make it? When did they change into it? Doesn't matter because you can just sell another action figure. Yep. That's pretty much it. Yep. You hit the nail on the head, Sean. Should we talk about the villains? We talked about them a little bit earlier, yeah. but uh, let's talk about governor, the governor of California. How crazy is it to think that Arnold Schwarzenegger... It was six years. It was six years after this movie that he was running the fifth biggest economy on planet Earth. I mean, they all saw, you know, he's a man with a vision based on what he was doing here uh, as Mr. Freeze. And they're like, we got to follow that man. Because, you know, if we ever, you know, have to deal with like, like freak winters or something, he's got like 500 ice puns just in his back pocket. So... Yeah, he may, you know he might not be able to solve the climate crisis, but if if we're all buried under snow, he'll at least have puns to make yeah, us laugh. Exactly. You know, I I I like Arnold Schwarzenegger yes. as an actor. He is fun. He is he seems like a pretty 
I was about to say decent person. He not because he like had a that whole like twenty year affair with his housemaid and that turned out really bad and that's gross. Um, but you know he made some good anti Trump videos in the last couple of years. He is at the very least Arnold Schwarzenegger is a fascinating person. Like yeah. as a human being, as an actor, as a politician, he is one of the most interesting things to ever come out of Hollywood. Um, and kind of inevitable that he would be a Batman villain at some point, right? Because mm-hmm. he's just such a large personality. He's clearly the kind of actor they were cast in these movies in the 90s um and i think the thing about mr freeze in this movie is that if you took out the stuff with the wife i think it's a kind of decent take on mr freeze for a kind of campy comedy kind of thing yeah the problem is that when you bring in the stuff with the wife it's utterly detached because this is basically the adam west mr freeze like the pre heart of ice which is the batman the animated series episode where Paul Dini and company all like kind of rewrote Mr. Freeze and did this whole origin where he's a tragic hero, not tragic hero, tragic anti-hero who like is trying to save his wife and all of that. In past incarnations of Mr. Freeze, on screen, in the comics, whatever, he is just a big bad guy in a big ice suit who has a big ice gun and does crimes, usually heists. And you'll see that in the, um, if you watch like the, the 66 Adam West series, where he's frankly one of the more boring villains in that series. There's a reason why he's not in the movie. Um, but like, this is basically that, but with Arnold Schwarzenegger hamming it up. And that's totally fine. Like, it's still not well directed or anything, but I could imagine a better director than Joel Schumacher doing a fun, campy Batman with this. Um, but it's when you bring in like the wife stuff yeah. and just like, that feels so detached from this guy who's like literally he the, the my favorite ver- example of this is when he like freezes robin and then batman has to decide do i save robin or do i go after freeze even though freeze could also just have frozen batman and like then took in a chisel and killed them both yep. um but he doesn't do that he says batman your emotions make you weak but he's trying to save his wife yeah what is that why did he say that mm-hmm. it's very weird yeah, no, you're 100% right that it just feels like they saw that everybody loved the Batman cartoon and how good that the character was there. They're like, well, let's take the whole Nora Freeze, the wife thing, and put it in the movie, not bothering to think about, well, what does that mean about the rest of the character and the rest of the movie? Because, again, fun, campy, silly Batman doesn't have a villain whose entire motivation is to, like, try to save his wife who's frozen very, like, you know, symbolically and powerfully in this, like, ice cage thing um from this like wasting disease that she's slowly dying from and he needs to find a cure for her and that's what motivates him to crime like that's not funny that's sad and you (laughs) don't want sad in funny movie is like a very like basic like formula for you or like you don't want particularly for like a funny silly kids movie if that's the thing you're going for having the dude's motivation be his dying wife isn't a great one, right? Having, like, the big, like, thing happen where the Poison Ivy, like, unplugs Nora's, like, ice chamber and the Mr. Freeze thinks for the whole third act that she's dead and that's what's pushing him to try to exterminate humanity. Like, on the face of it, that's pretty fucking dark. And it doesn't make it fun and, like, it, it kills so much of the campy side of the movie once that starts becoming heavier when you get deeper into the film. Um, and it's a shame because I'm with you. I think when he just gets to be running around making ice puns, Though we'll go through a couple of them because some of them are like utterly inexplicable. Um, yes, he he's having a good time, and you know Arnold Schwarzenegger just has like a movie star presence. Um, yes, and so he like brings a charisma to the role that he's just enjoyable to watch on camera and see him do his thing. 
and he's really good when he just gets to do that. Um, and then, you know, then at the end of the movie, he gets to cry the single tear that freezes into like an ice drop. And but then he follows that up with take two of these and call me in the morning as he gives them <laughs> the medicine that's going to cure Alfred. And it's like there's no single like 10 seconds of footage that could more perfectly show you why the character choices didn't work for this movie than that. Like you can't yes. have him cry the frozen tear and then make a pun. It's it just doesn't yes. work. That I think that might be like the ultimate sum up of Batman and Robin the movie experience is those 10 seconds. Yeah. yeah. I also will praise Mr. Freeze in this movie is the only piece of production design yes. or costuming that I think is good in either Joel Schumacher movie. The makeup on him is genuinely very impressive and I think the costume is pretty cool. Um it's it doesn't look like cheap shit like everything else. Yeah, I think in particular, like I think the makeup on him, some like those close ups. That's some of the stuff that watching the four K Blu Ray um, was very impressive. Is I think like it like holds up really well. Like it looks like it has like this texture to it um, yeah. that you can see all this detail in. That just looks great. Um, so yeah, like I will agree with you. That I think that is the one area of the movie that like feels like. I don't know if there was, like, a special, like, makeup artist that whose whole job was just Mr. Freeze. It probably was because it would have been a big makeup job um, every day of shooting. Growth. It took, like, six hours yeah. every day. Like, it was a big commitment. And it's it's part of why Arnold Schwarzenegger was, like, paid so much for this movie. I got to look up. I think he got, like, $20 million or something. Yeah, it was I, a huge payday. Right. Um, but, yeah, like, it feels like whoever was in charge for all that stuff, they did a good job. Um, so Yes. Okay, so yeah. here. Schwarzenegger was paid $25 million dollars. And his armor was made by armorer Terry English, who oh, estimated the wow. costume, who estimated the costume cost one point five million dollars to make. Yeah, Terry uh, Terry English is like a legendary costume, like film prop designer. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, and he yeah his prosthetic makeup and wardrobe took six hours to apply every day. Uh, he had to shave his head. Uh, no, he actually didn't shave his head. He refused to shave his head, so he had to wear a bald cap. And then he had to wear a blue LED in his mouth to, like, complete the effect. So it was a very, like, in-depth costuming job. And, and it is impressive. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, it is just so... It's... Oh, my God. This is hilarious. I, I was going to say something else, but I just read that the other people considered for Mr. Freeze were Ed Harris, Anthony Hopkins, and Patrick Stewart. Man, can you imagine... <laughs> If he, it was Patrick Stewart, like how much more inappropriate the character would be for the movie. Um, nice to see you, Batman. Yes. Oh my God, that would be such a bizarre movie. Um, now they they do also say that they rewrote the script when they cast Schwarzenegger, so who knows what it was before then? But like the thing is, Schwarzenegger, if they actually did the Nora Freeze story, he's miscast for that. Like he's not that kind of dramatic actor. You would want like if they had Ed. Actually, Ed Harris, as, at that age, as Mr. Freeze, doing the, like, animated version of the story would be amazing casting. I could totally see that. But that's not what they did. They did Silly Mr. Freeze, where Schwarzenegger is the perfect casting, but with this, like, side of the Nora Freeze yeah. stuff. Oh, man. It's it's not good. Um, do you want to do some ice puns, Sean? Yeah, so let's talk about some of these, because, you know, I... The pun, superhero pun dialogue is a long time honored tradition. You know, it goes back to the roots 
of the golden age of comic books. You got to have superheroes and supervillains talking puns. I don't know why that became a tradition, but it just is. Everybody, you know, you can't just it's have fun. someone like, you know, if because they do this scene in the movie. That's maybe the most overdone pun in the history of superhero stuff is where the villain is in some sort of machine or something. And then the superhero drops in from a hatch from up top and they say, nice of you to drop in, Batman, um, <laughs> which is like kind of almost not even a pun like it's a very much of a stretch of like well yeah i guess that is a phrase we say for like people that's like come on by it's like oh you dropped by and he literally dropped in it's like oh, okay um but it is what it is the superhero puns i'm for them in when they are well done and a lot of the mr freeze ones are great and i love hearing arnold schwarzenegger do them there's a couple to me that i that are just not true and it kind of hurts the pun. I'm going to start with one that's like, this one's not a big deal. That it's like, it's just not actually accurate. But it is a funny one where he says, this is what, I think this is like the first one he get, gives us is, in this universe, there is only one absolute. Everything freezes. This is, what about alcohol? Yes. Like, that's not, that's just not true. Not everything freezes. And there's, that's not the only absolute in the universe. The only absolute in the universe is entropy and death. So thanks, Mr. Freeze, for giving us that one. Um, at one, I would have loved if Batman shot back with that. Uh, no, Mister Freeze. The only absolute is entropy and death. And then he like shoots him in the yes. head. That'd be great. And you know, and that would fit into Batman's whole like the theme that they desperately tried to shove into this movie, where Alfred's like, and your whole thing, Batman, is you're trying to conquer death. Um, which apparently the message of the movie is that he can and succeeds because Alfred doesn't die. Um, yes. Which you know, <laughs> all through Alfred is like, you know, he's an old man. He told you he's not going to be here forever. So maybe we'll have to revisit this theme. Uh, in a few years but yes uh then he has another line that this is another one that's just like this isn't a pun because this is the thing that people say he says freeze well which is what he says when he leaves at the end of that 15 minute or it's when he like jumps out of the thing in the 10 minute mark of the 15 minute opening action scene that then after that batman and robin escape as it explodes and grab like metal planks to surfboard down in the open air which is like not a thing i don't know why they grab these big things like it's the beginning of fucking sonic adventure 2 um yep but he says freeze well that's not a pun Nobody says that. It doesn't sound like something else that people say. Um, but the one to me that is the one that is just like, you can't do this. Because not only is the thing he says here wrong, it's like so famously not true that there is no audience member that understands the English language that wouldn't immediately just say, well, this that's just not accurate. Which is when he says, what killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age. The meteor killed the dinosaurs, asshole. Like, <laughs> four-year-olds know that. Like, you can't say, like, it doesn't work as a pun if it's just an obviously untrue fact. It's like, you know, you could come up with something else. It's like what drove the saber-toothed tiger to extinction, the Ice Age, and then he shoots the saber-toothed tiger. Like, something else. But the dinosaurs didn't die because of the Ice Age. The dinosaurs were hundreds of millions of years away from the fucking Ice Age. So... It was the meteor. Everyone knows it was the meteor, asshole. You, you're fucking a doctor, Mr. Freeze. Like, you should know this shit. I can't abide by that pun. It's too bad. It's just, it's too shitty of a fucking pun. I can't, I can't deal with it. It is a very bad pun. He could have done something like, you know, what kind of tea do I like, Batman? Ice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, would have been better. Um, yeah, the tea, uh, free ice puns, they're fun. All right. Uh, do you want to talk about Poison Ivy really quick? 
Uma Thurman hams it up in a way that is very fun. Uma Thurman knows what she is in yeah. and what she is doing, and she just she has like that kind of quality that like very much like Catwoman in any of the incarnations in the '66 Batman, like. She's very good at it. She's very entertaining, even when, like, she is much better than the script she is given. Yes. But, like, she makes a meal out of all of it. There is one pun that I do genuinely find funny from Poison Ivy, which, which is when she says, she, she teams up with Mr. Freeze and she says, I'll help you grab your rocks in reference to the diamonds. I can totally see that in an Adam West Batman episode. Maybe it's like a little risque for Adam West Batman, but I could see that. That one is pretty good. Then there's one that is just sort of shockingly like explicit, mm-hmm. which is the slippery when wet pun, where I definitely didn't catch that as a kid. But as an adult, I'm like, wow, wow, I can't believe they got that into this movie. Wow. I, I, you know, like, and, and then she follows it up with like, with like we're going to get you rock hard, Mr. Freeze. Like she, that would be basically the same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the slippery when wet one is, I think, the funniest like i can't believe this got passed because it is that's one that it feels like you could like batman returns is jealous that that wasn't in that movie for like yes, how exactly horny it is because that's robin coming up and robin saying like like oh we'll i forget what the whole exchange is but he says a line that's like we'll have to put up a sign um and then she says oh slippery when wet as she leans back into her like venus flytrap thing that is going to eat her um for no reason later in the action scene uh yeah it's it's the the like weird seductress thing with the character they do i mean uma thurman does a good job with like i think by far the best scene in the movie is when she is does the striptease in the gorilla costume and seduces all the men and it's just like a thousand puns a second and she's just loving it um that is by far the best sequence in the whole film um that's also where you have the bat credit card which like is the only time that batman does something that's funny in the movie um and it's like i wish the whole movie was like that scene that's the because that's the scene that like when people say oh this is like this is an underappreciated camp movie um it's like there's there's better stuff in there that people don't appreciate that's the only scene in the movie where i can see where people would be saying that because that scene is good but giant flaming neon asterisk by that scene sean is that it's just a ripoff uh-huh. almost shot for shot of Marlena Dietrich in Blonde Venus, which if people have not seen, classic Marlena Dietrich movie, very good movie. She does this strip tease out of a gorilla costume. It is, like, literally, you can go look at my Twitter. I put it up, and it is, like, identical, other than the Joel Schumacher one has a bunch of really ugly neon color in it. Um, but that's, it's just stolen from Blonde Venus. Uh, uncomfortable racism and all, with all the, yes. like, black people gyrating in the jungle costume, um, which in Blonde Venus... At least it was the 30s, and so you can kind of contextualize it more, but, like, it's a infamous, like, mark on that movie that we talk about when we show Blonde Venus in film school now. And Joel Schumacher just did it without irony in 1997. So, yeah, I agree it's the best. It is by far the best directed scene in the movie. By far. But that is because uh, Joel Schumacher watched Blonde Venus and just ripped it off. There you go. I'd rather watch him rip off a good movie than to do... What he's doing for most of Batman and Robin, even even if it's uncomfortably racist. That is the truth. Um, okay. Uh, do you like there? Oh, you know who we haven't talked about yet? Who? Bane. <laughs> this movie yeah. technically does Bane, but it does Bane as like a gimp suit from Pulp Fiction put in a series of funny hats, 
And uh, what the fuck? I feel like Bane in Batman and Robin has always been like the number one example of like Hollywood taking a villain in name only and just completely fucking it up, right? Which was like a really common thing through the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, because this is the character who in the Nightfall arc in the comic books, which is where he's famous from, right? He like orchestrates this master plan to release all the villains from Arkham and to push Batman to a corner, culminating in the iconic panel of him breaking Batman's back over his knee. And then Bane takes over fucking Gotham until Batman can recover and Robin and all the other characters come in and help um, defeat Bane. And in this movie, he is a character who is experimented on by an evil scientist that that Pamela Isley, Poison Ivy, is working for, um, whom she kills in the scene after that character is introduced. In a way that feels like very bizarre that there's not more scenes in between her getting killed by the evil scientist and her reviving as Poison Ivy. There's only one scene that breaks that up. It is that's really weird editing. Um but that guy is just in this crazy Frankenstein's lab. And then there's these characters who, up in a balcony who are like caricatures of world leaders standing there watching as he's like raving lunatic about like, and I have this venom thing that makes people super powerful and evil. And I'm also going to put this guy in a luchador mask for no discernible reason. <laughs> um, and then pump him full of this stuff and make him a big strong guy. Um, and nothing about that is ever addressed for the entire rest of the movie. And there's a scene after that. Then it cuts back to him. After he's killed Pamela Isley. And then she comes back as Poison Ivy. And murders him. After she says that her uh, body. Her blood has been replaced with alloy. And her skin chlorophyll. Which chlorophyll is a pigment. So no your skin was not replaced with chlorophyll. That's not what chlorophyll is. Another example of people not knowing what things are in this movie. Or like what not. Akiva Goldsman not knowing what anything is. When he read the fucking script. Um, and then once that character has been killed by Poison Ivy nothing about that side of the movie ever comes up again. And I so desperately want to know what the fuck was going on with that. What was that room? Who were those like powerful people from like every major country around the world watching this? Like what was the, what the fuck was all of that? It's so weird. I have no memory of that scene at all from when I watched the movie as a kid. And I'm so fascinated by it. Yeah. If you've seen the dark Knight rises, Tom Hardy's Bane is actually a very faithful characterization of Bane. Yes. Like, it it changes some things. Like, it's not Venom, it's painkillers, and that's why he's high all the time. But other than that, like, it's pretty true to the Nightfall story in a lot of ways. His entire demeanor of that he's actually almost like a Bond villain. He's very smart. That's Bane. Yes. Like, it's, it's a very faithful... And Tom Hardy's Bane is one of the best comic book movie villains ever. Um, so, better than this, definitely. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> So my favorite Bane part is when Barbara and Robin beat him at the end very easily and he shrinks back down, which to my knowledge has never been a thing with Bane where you take the venom out and he fucking shrinks like a fucking special effect. Yeah, it's he's so like, bad. yeah, he turns into like a weird shriveled raisin version of himself. Yeah. No, the best yeah. the best part is the when they look at like a picture of Poison Ivy and Bane and there's like a like fedora that's been photoshopped on Bane's head. Yes. Like, they didn't even have when they took the picture with the actor because presumably they didn't take the pictures of the actor. They were just like sh shots that they already had from like production stills or some shit that they like comped together into this photo. And there's just this fedora placed in like post effects on top of Bane's head in this picture. It's like why? Like why is it? I mean, it's very funny. 
but it again it's one of the things of like the like the tone of this movie so all over the place that when that happens it's a very very funny image but you can't tell if it's on purpose or not because enough of the movie's dramatic and serious because again that's probably right next to the scene where alfred's fucking dying in his bed um or mr freeze is crying ice over his like dying wife that it's hard to know, am I supposed to laugh at the hilarious picture of Bane with a fedora pasted on top of his head? Um, it's very weird. So, uh, Bane was played by a professional wrestler named Robert Swenson, who died two months after this movie came out of heart failure. He was eulogized by Hulk Hogan and James Caan. That's a, that's a great combo. Um, and... In 1996, when he did World Championship Wrestling on pay-per-view, he performed under the name The Final Solution, but had to change that after Jewish groups reached out and pointed out the um, uncomfortable connection there. Yeah, so, we should talk about uh, he, he became the ultimate much. solution. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, that's some fun trivia for you about, uh, well, not so fun, but um, interesting trivia, yeah. let's say. So, anyway... Yeah, um, Vivica A. Fox is in this movie for one scene as the like sexy oh, yeah. assistant who. It's so weird. Like Vivica Fox was like in a lot of stuff at this time, especially this was like I feel like the height of her like career. She's she's in like several Tarantino movies, I think, mm -hmm. and like um, she's in that one scene where she's like trying to warm up to Mister Freeze. And what's so weird that totally feels like a scene that was written with no intention to do the Nora Freeze thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, that was weird. Um, anyway, so, that happened. Uh, I, I think, you know, there's Batman has a girlfriend in this movie. I had not remembered that. But Ellie McPherson plays Julie Madison, Bruce Wayne's girlfriend, who just in a... That, remember there's that one scene where she just proposes to him? Yeah. That was weird. And this, yeah, this is the th that feels like like the vestiges of a different movie where it's like... it's yes. It is the most... You have seen this because we've had three Batman movies at this point in this, like, vague style, um, right? Technically, in this continuity, technically, this is the same Batman that fought Jack Nicholson Joker at the top of the bell tower. Yep. Um, that we've seen him do this thing, um, and the shot kind of like those scenes and stuff like that of them at dinner. Um, and then she's like, oh, you know, I, I want us to, like, go further. I want to be with you forever, Bruce. And he's like, oh, there's, you know, things about me you would understand. It's like, oh, I know you get crazy at night. It's like, oh, you don't, you don't know. I get very crazy at the nights. Um, and then she's like, well, I'm not going to wait around for you forever. He's like, okay. And then that character isn't in the scene anymore. And it's like, why was this in the movie? Yeah, it's very baffling. Uh, the musical score is once again by Elliot Goldenthal, and Elliot Goldenthal is a good composer. This score is terrible. It's mostly just the like new Batman theme he wrote in Forever, and they just play it a million times yeah. because uh, how do you score this movie? Like you can just <laughs> tell as a composer, he's very confused on what to do because like this really should have like a fucking like silly like toy orchestra score over it but it's got this big like hollywood orchestra symphony thing and it's just a very lost score it's very weird yeah it's very weird you know what here's another like really weird piece of plotting in the movie that goes absolutely nowhere is for most of the movie alfred is looking for his long lost brother who is a butler for right. like one of like a member of royalty in india and you find out the reason why is because he wants to send this brother this data 
um, that has all the information on Batman because it's like, I need to leave behind my legacy of my responsibilities to my long lost brother, which feels weird because I feel like being Batman's butler is definitely a full-time job. And this, your brother has other, he has his own job, his own thing that he is. I do like the intimation that like, Alfred's family are just like butlers to the most powerful people around the world, like in all these different countries. But you find out that like that whole plot is just a incredibly convoluted way for Batgirl to discover all the Batman stuff for her to get the costume. Because that's also how she discovers secret AI Alfred, the Alfred program that lives in the Bat computer, which is such a great plot, plot point. But the weird thing is Alfred's long lost brother never comes up again. What the fuck happened to him? Is he dead? Like, why can't you find him? It feels like something that's supposed to be resolved. There are like four conversations in the movie about how Alfred can't find this brother. And then after Batgirl gets her costume, it never comes up again because the movie's over. It's in the climactic arc. It's like, well, why would you do it that way? That's so much effort and so much buildup and setup. For something that has nothing to do with the brother at all. It's just a way to get Batgirl the fucking costume. It's like, why? Why? It's, there's just one of the many, many questions with the script of this movie. Where I just left wondering, why would you ever make it so hard on yourself to do it like that? You added like 10 minutes into the movie by doing all this. You could have just had it be something so much simpler. About Alfred having like a thing that's being left behind that needs to be given to another member of the Pennyworth family and then Batgirl discovers it and she unlocks it and then she discovers that she's Batgirl. It doesn't have to be this elaborate secret brother that works in India thing. It's so overly complicated. Uh, yeah, 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 it's bad. Anything else to say about this movie specifically? I have another couple things I want to talk about, but I don't know. This well seems pretty dry. One last thing I want to talk about, because it was the other thing, the main thing I tweeted about, or I tweeted out this shot oh, from right. the movie, is I talked about it a little bit with the hilarious climax of Robin, who is just useless. They've been building up the confrontation between him and Poison Ivy for the whole movie. Um, and he's useless. He gets shoved into, he gets, he gets shoved. He falls. He rolls backwards about 10 feet into a pool. And then he re remains in that pool, struggling under it for the whole rest of the fight scene. And then there is a shot that is, if you know, you're going to like, you can't, you can't do this. This is an impossible shot. Why would they ever do this? It is just mind boggling where Robin it's two seconds of footage where Robin, for the first second, comes up out of the water, shaking his head. And then the second second of footage is that same second, but played in reverse. And it is the cheapest, laziest, most student film looking fucking thing in the whole movie. Even worse than that bad edit with fucking um, Pamela Isley near the beginning of the movie. Because, for a lot of reasons. So, because one, you know, playing footage backwards is a pretty common technique in a lot of different movies. There's a lot of things you can do with playing footage backwards as like a special effect technique that you can do things really well. Like Jackie Chan does it sometimes. It's a very, that's a legitimate technique. But you need to know what the fuck you're doing if you're gonna play footage backwards. One thing you absolutely cannot do is have a weird symmetrical shot that is one contiguous <laughs> shot where the first half plays it forwards and then the second half of that same shot is that shot backwards. Because everybody's going to notice 
that the second half of the shot is just the first shot backwards because it's identical. It's just played in reverse. So that's rule number one You they break, is that you can't do that. If you just played it backwards without that additional context, it would be harder to tell. The other thing you can't do is you can't play footage of something in water backwards because water doesn't behave the same way backwards that it does forwards, right? You can't try to get a shot of a pebble rising out of a lake by dropping a pebble into a lake and then playing the, the <laughs> footage backwards. Because when you drop a pebble at a lake, water emanates from that central point in circles. When you play it backwards, it then is just all the water that is rippling out, assembling back into a central point and then a pebble coming out of it. It doesn't look like a pebble magically rising out of a lake. It looks like footage of a pebble dropped in a lake backwards. And this is what they do. You see a relatively calm surface of the water. It breaks around and splashes around as Robin splashes. And then it all comes magically back together to be the calm surface of the water again. And it's it has got to be the worst fucking shot in a movie I've ever seen that has this kind of budget. It's just, how did they think they could get away with it? Why did they do it this way? Like, why wouldn't you just cut instead of playing it backwards? Why not just make it a one second long shot and then cut to something else? Why have Robin in this situation at all for the entire climactic fight scene? Every single choice that leads to them making the choice to play it backwards is baffling. And I refuse to believe that there was nothing else they could have done in the edit. There must have been other footage they could have done to communicate Robin is struggling in the water that did not have to result in them playing this fucking footage backwards like this. It is shameful that they fucking did it. Yeah, because, I mean, the simple explanation is it's the just utter amateur bullshit of they didn't get enough coverage on the day and they didn't do reshoots and so... They just didn't have a shot that communicated Robin is struggling in water. And so they went with the cheapest, stupidest thing that like, I'm literally, I'm looking at it on your Twitter page right now, Sean, and it looks like you manipulated the video. Like it looks like something you did on your iPhone and went, huh, this is funny. And you didn't, a, a multi-million dollar editor did it in a fucking avid suite on the Warner Brothers lot. And then they printed it on fucking prints and sent it to theaters around the world. Like... What the fucking fuck? This is what I mean by an ineptly made movie. Yeah, it is it is like insulting to people watching the movie that you'd put that in. Um, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's disgusting. I can't believe they did it. Uh, I also love that the every Mr. Freeze scene feels so disconnected from every other Mr. Freeze scene because at the end he has his big redemption moment where he gives Batman the medicine and then makes a pun. Take two of these and call me in the yeah. morning. But then he goes and then Batman says like, I'm going to have you know Mrs. Freeze. I saved her. Batman also could be lying. Batman, <laughs> we never see him save True. Mr. Freeze. We never see it. We only have Batman say at the last minute in what feels like a rewrite to me. Like it feels like something that like oh shit, we didn't film anything about saving Mr. Freeze's wife. Uh, have George just say something about it. And so he says we saved her. I'll put her in Arkham and you can continue your research. And he's like, okay. And it's like, he's redeemed. But then the, his last scene is him like coming into Poison Ivy's room saying, my new mission in life is to make your life hell. And like, well, which is it? Is he here to torture Poison Ivy or save his wife? Yeah, I, I think you're right that that line that George Clooney has must have been something they added in later. Um, I, 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 just, I mean, I wouldn't not interested enough to actually do it, but I bet if you went back and like paid attention to it, thinking about it, that it's that line is almost certainly eighty yard in, because it must because you don't see Nora either. There's no shot of right. her in Arkham. You're just told that she's there, and that scene with Mister Freeze at the end would make perfect sense as a climax of they tell tell him that 
Poison Ivy killed Nora, and then they, he ends up in Arkham, and then he's mad at her. But, yeah, right. it doesn't make sense as, like, the last shot of the movie when you've just been told that Nora's alive, and he gets to go do the research and save her. Um, so, yeah, like, I would be willing to yeah. bet that that is, like, something that got ADR'd in after producers saw it and was like, well, we can't, it's, a, it's the kiddies will be sad that his wife is dead. You gotta fix it. It, it even could have been, like, the way that scene is shot, it's just sides, so it mm. could have been a really easy reshoot. It's Batman against basically a green screen. You could have done that in any way. Like, it would have been very, it, it definitely, like, very clearly was not there in the original script. Because, yeah. Because yeah, the, then Mr. Freeze's ending doesn't make sense. Like, why does he care about Poison Ivy if his wife's alive? Yeah. Also, but, I like that Poison Ivy, who is, like, inexplicably alive after she got eaten by her fucking Venus flytrap. Then she's just in her cell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck, fuck this movie. Fuck this movie, Sean. Can we talk about what they were going to do next? Yes. So, okay. So Batman and Robin, they, so, the, I mean, this is such a weird saga. Going from the 1989 Tim Burton Batman to this in seven years, like, oh my God, what a fucking turnaround. But here, this is from the Wikipedia page, but I've heard this story a million times. Uh, apparently during the filming of Batman and Robin, Warner Bros. was impressed with the dailies. <laughs> so they wanted to do a third one. They had, before the movie had come out, they had hired Joel Schumacher to direct the third film. Um, or the fifth film, I guess you would say, but his third film. So, and my guess when I when they say Warner Bros. was impressed with the dailies is probably they were like counting stacks of money of how many toys they could sell. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Akiva Goldsman was not going to come back to write the script. They hired Mark Protosevich, who is a guy who like was around Hollywood for a while, but never really wrote anything that got like made on his own. I guess he did a couple. He made the Poseidon remake. And he co-wrote I Am Legend with Akiva Goldsman. And then he has credits on some other ones. Uh, nope, you know what? His last credit is he wrote the remake of Old Boy, which is really bad if you've never seen it. It wow. is a bad movie. Anyway, so Mark Protisevich was going to write this fifth movie. It was going to be called Batman Unchained. Uh, it's been misreported as Batman Triumphant, but the actual title of the script was Batman Unchained, which, you know, makes sense for the general BDSM quality of these movies. Um, there are conflicts over whether this would have been a silly Batman movie. Joel Schumacher swore that he would have made it darker. I don't trust him on that. The LA Times contemporaneously said WB wanted another silly one with like multiple villains the same way three and four were. Um, but the Protosevich script for Unchained was Scarecrow as the main villain. And Joker would be in the movie as a hallucination. And they wanted to get Jack Nicholson back to do Joker scenes. But they were also going to do Harley Quinn. But just like with Barbara, they completely rewrote her. So she was going to be the Joker's daughter trying to kill Batman to avenge her father's death. Which, my God, the like Freudian ramifications of making Harley Quinn Joker's daughter instead of his girlfriend is so fucked up mm -hmm. that I don't even want to imagine it. I'm very glad this didn't happen. Um, but the film would have depicted Scarecrow and Harley Quinn teaming up to drive Batman insane and have him committed to Arkham Asylum. After their defeat, the film would have ended with Bruce Wayne traveling to Bali and entering a cave where he allows himself to be swarmed by bats to symbolize that he has conquered fear. Well, that was his overarching arc in all of this triumphant uh, series of films, um, was that, yes. that just how scared of bats he was. So Schumacher wanted Nicolas Cage to play Scarecrow and wanted him to be in a cameo in Batman and Robin to set up Batman Unchained before ultimately he cast Coolio. 
the rapper who is in Batman and Robin. Do you know where, Sean? No, who is he? He's one of the bikers, and apparently it's a biker named Jonathan Crane, and that would have been Scarecrow. He's one of the bikers in the scene with Batgirl and Robin where they're, uh, they're doing their race. Coolio is in that scene, and he would have played Scarecrow in, in Batman Unchained. What? Like... <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's fucking like, weird, isn't why, it? If you're, if you're trying to set up like a cameo for Scarecrow, why wouldn't the character be... One of the people working in Arkham as a psychiatrist. Because, you know, Scarecrow is a fucking psychiatrist who uses his expertise as a psychiatrist to, like, drive people insane with their phobias. That's his entire yes. character. Why would he be in a motorcycle gang? What the, the fuck does that have to do with exploiting people's fears? What a, like, thank God they didn't make this movie that they didn't have to fucking do Scarecrow dirty the way they did Bane. Jesus Christ. Yep, uh, but Batman and Robin thankfully flopped. Like, it only made $238 million worldwide. That is very low. It did very poorly. Uh, this and the Superman movie, Superman Lives, were canceled at the same time. And so Warner really went into turnaround on all their superhero products. And then there was this long development hell for both Batman and Superman. And you'll remember that Batman Begins and Superman Returns came out around the same time. Batman Begins is 2005, Superman Returns is 2006. So that's sort of where this all went. What they did is they had, after this point, a competing uh, live-action films. They were working on both a Batman Beyond film and a Batman Year One film. And the Batman Beyond film ultimately never went anywhere, and Batman Year One went through a lot of phases. Um, we'll talk about this more when we get to Batman Begins, but it ultimately became Batman Begins by Chris Nolan. Um, and that worked. So... Yeah. You know, um, all was well for at least a little while after that. Um, but yeah, thank God Batman and Robin flopped. It took them a very long time to figure out what to do with Batman. And what to do with Batman was basically just get a good filmmaker and do a basic Batman story. It was really hard for them to figure that out, but they did eventually. Yeah, but oh boy. Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. These two movies are trash garbage. True, true garbage tier films. Two true utter trash garbage, and you know, uh, I actually rewatched around the time Zack Snyder's Justice League came out, Batman v Superman, and I do not like Batman v Superman very much at all. I don't really like it at all. There's a lot of stuff I really don't like in that movie. I will say this: that movie at least has like a degree of like artistic integrity and ambition, and like well put togetherness. That is so utterly lacking in these that if I have ever said that was the worst Batman movie before, that is wrong. These are worse than that. Yeah. And I have recently rewatched all three, and I, I will say that. Yeah, I haven't seen Batman v Superman since the theater, but I would also say, like, you know, I don't like that movie. I haven't seen it since then. Maybe my opinion would be better or worse, but I can't imagine me ever feeling like it is worse than these two films. Just on, like, just on, like, the bones of it. Like, just the very simple plot storytelling ideas like things again that you kind of take for granted that most movies just have even if they're not great at exploring all of them even if some of those ideas are bad most movies have those elements in them um batman forever has a precious little of it batman and robin has basically none and so 
yeah there's yeah whatever your opinion on Zack snyder good or bad he can direct actors yes. block a scene frame a scene and edit a scene he can do the basics and he can actually do those basics very well um it's other things that i think people have a problem with and, and we had a problem with with that movie but it is a like it's a movie it looks like a movie it feels like a movie it, it passes the lowest fucking bar that these movies cannot overcome yeah i mean if you just want an example it's like just compare any action sequence in any of these two joel schumacher movies to the warehouse scene in batman v superman and like the difference in like rock competency and skill in filmmaking and editing and composing and choreographing and all of that it is that is night and day like that is that is like you know you're you're it's it is as you would say like the japanese sort of saying of like it is the difference between heaven and earth like it is not to say that's like there are lots of action scenes that are a lot better and i like more than that warehouse scene in batman v superman but it is a good action sequence there is not a good action sequence in any of these two movies no 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 but Sean, we're finally done with the '90s. Oh my God! Yeah, thank God. As as I texted to you when you asked, when you wanted to confirm that we we're going to do this podcast, I said, "Let's rip this bandaid off," and the bandaid is off, and it stings a little bit, but I think it's going to be fine. So next time on part seven of Batman on Film, whenever we get around to it, which should be soon because we want to do this one, uh, we are taking a brief divergence into the direct to video realm for Batman Beyond: Return of the Joker. Uh, we will not be doing, obviously, all the various uh, direct-to-video Batman movies, but Sean, tell us really quickly, why is this one worthy of being part of this series? Yeah, I, I really wanted to do this one uh, for a couple of reasons. One, just because I, I realized, Jonathan, that you hadn't seen it, because you hadn't, before we talked about this, you hadn't seen any Batman Beyond. I'm like, Jonathan should, no, I hadn't. Jonathan should watch this fucking movie, because it's very good. So I was like, this is something I can give to you as a present. I can give you the experience of watching this movie through this podcast. Um, Thank you. And that was one thing I wanted to do. And then another was I love Batman Beyond in this movie. Um, like, you know, I don't want to like overhype it or something, but I really like this movie a lot. I watched it again a few years ago and really enjoyed it. Um, and it's kind of a spiritual sequel in many ways to Batman the Animated Series and in some ways Mask of the Phantasm also. Um, and so it is made by that same team because the team that worked on the animated series worked on Batman Beyond. Um, this is not a full theatrical production, so it doesn't quite have the budget, the full budget that Master of the Phantasm had. Um, but it is a very well-produced, well-made, well-scripted, well-acted animated movie that takes up a lot of the themes and ideas about the Joker and Batman that are very relevant to Master of the Phantasm and also are going to continue to be relevant because the Joker, we are not done with the Joker in live-action Batman either. So if we're going to... Oh, we will never be yes. done with the Joker in live-action Batman. Yeah. That's... I mean... For, yeah. To illustrate that point, we're not even doing every movie that the Joker is in for this Batman on film series, which feels like inexplicable. I don't know how that's possible that Hollywood is set up in such a way that there are multiple films that have the Joker in it that are not going to be in this series because they're not Batman movies. Um, but yeah, this is, I think, one of the best treatments of the Joker. And if we're going to be able to talk about the special corner of history for Batman, which is Batman Beyond, a series that I really, really is near and dear to my heart. Um, I think that people are going to enjoy it. 